WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 293. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 2307 in the Weston Peachtree Plaza Hotel in downtown Atlanta. In this episode, Airbus nav error, a man arrested in Sweden possessing an explosive device, more news, your feedback, and the latest Plain Tales installment, the Ian Black Interviews, Part 2. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions Electronic devices powered on. Flight 293 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast. And as I mentioned here at the beginning, uh, in the Peachtree Plaza Hotel in downtown Atlanta, and the reason for that is because the gentleman sitting right next to me, and I'm being very liberal with gentlemen, who happens to be a former RAF and RAAF fighter pilot. He is currently a captain for a big European airline flying the wide-body Airbuses, wide-body Airbuses. And his name, of course, we all know him, Captain Nick Anderson. <laughs> Uh, good morning, Jeff, and thank you very much indeed for actually. It used to we, be morning. It was morning when we started. Uh, now it's afternoon. <laughs> Sorry. Exactly. Uh, and uh, yes, I'm, I'm not a very gentle man, but uh, I try and be reasonably polite. So you can call me polite man if you like. He is an he is a gentleman actually. So I'm just kidding around. But uh, so nice to see you. Uh, we got together last night. You flew in, kind of a last minute deal. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was it's my month on standby, so uh, I got like half an hour's notice that I had to be out of the house and uh, in the car, so I already had a bag packed. And uh, it was, uh, you know, 6.30 in the morning, so I was just being roused from deep sleep by the phone. And then uh, grabbed my bag, had a quick shower. Judy uh, gave me a, a quick espresso as I ran out the door. And Wasn't uh, sure where you were going with that one. Yeah. <laughs> Jelly gave me a well, quick you know, ah, wait for three days. Family show. Oh, wait. Exactly right. Hang on. I have something here that I need to, um, that's perfect for that. Uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. Oh, very good. You I recognize like that. That's that's a, that's yeah, a, well done. Matt. The legendary Matt Did he Smith. do that for you especially? He did. Oh, what a nice guy. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. I forgot to play it. I had it last week. But I forgot <laughs> to play it. <laughs> Oh, I love it. So anyway, uh, uh, luckily it was a Sunday morning. So normally a uh, call at that time would mean meeting the rush hour traffic up the uh, main motorways to the airport. But it was nice and quiet. So I got in fairly quick. And uh, I was just explaining to the chat room a little earlier that uh, I hadn't really been keeping track on what was happening around the world. I just had a lovely holiday in Italy. And uh, then I came back with a bit of cold, so I wasn't feeling very well. So I wasn't really paying much attention to what was going on around the world. And I got into uh, the check-in area, and I actually beat my first officer, uh, who uh, pitched up a little while later. And I looked at the paperwork, and there was some strange uh, meteorological symbol over 
the middle of Atlanta. And uh, I looked at it and went, well, oh, it looks like a kind of a, a bent pro pair of propellers, you know. And I'm, what's, what's that doing there? And I scratched my head and went, hang on a minute, isn't that, isn't that a typhoon, tropical revolving storm or something? What's going on? And uh, subsequently discovered uh, when I read the flight plan that uh, it said due to um, uh, NATE, and I thought, well, that usually stands for Nat Track Echo. So I thought, what's happened to the Nat Tracks? What's going on? Awful, that Nat Track Echo. <laughs> yes, exactly. So due to uh, NATE, uh, distant diversions, uh, the largest amount of diversion fuel plus one hour's holding. And I went, oh, what's that all about? We don't normally get an hour's holding fuel. Uh, and uh, a little bit more investigation, of course, turned out that there was this storm approaching Atlanta. So uh, I was very grateful for the additional work that our operations had done to uh, put that fuel on. So I was quite comfortable saying, man, that looks perfectly adequate. And the forecast for Atlanta wasn't too bad. It was going to be a little bit gusty, but the wind was inside our crosswind limits. We've got a 37-knot crosswind limit, even on our wet runway with um, sort of... Uh, Breaking action in the matrix uh, of condition five, which uh, the best is six on a sort of dry, good runway. Five means just it's it's wet. So that's 37 knots across. So we were well inside the crosswind limits because the wind was forecast to be well from the south. Um, I noticed that uh, Birmingham, which uh, is, what, about 50, 70 miles west to here? No, it's more than that. More, it's a okay. couple-hour drive, so... Okay. I don't know, 120, 150, something like that. Right. I noticed they were forecasting uh, f gusts of 50 knots across their runway. So uh, yeah, that, the, they were obviously a bit closer to the that. center of the circulation yeah. was closer to where they were. So it looked like the storm was going to pass to the west of Atlanta. So uh, see, I seem quite comfortable with that. But um, we uh, we launched off and uh, I, I had a phone call. Well, so I called Ops and said, look, guys, do me a favor, keep an eye on what's going on and just let me know. And uh, luckily, I also had uh, Mike Carroll's on and he was on a day off. And uh, I it seems like he's always on a day off. Yeah, I know he does take a lot of days. I don't think Mike off, ever ever works really. Well, I don't know, and then he, when he's at work, he really hardly works. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, Mike. Just kidding. I'm sure he, hard work. he was very helpful because uh, <laughs> he kept a track of uh, what was going on and. Uh, just uh, because I was able to use the aircraft um, internet system, I could uh, just pick up the odd tweet from him uh, about what was happening to the storm. Uh, and it, you may find it a bit odd that I'm taking in information via the internet um, to when, you know, it, there ought to be something slightly more sophisticated. But to be absolutely truthful, um, real-time weather information for the pilots on board their aircraft is very limited. Uh, we can pull in... Uh, the latest actuals of uh, airfields. Uh, we can pull in the latest forecasts, but um, at the moment, uh, we have no way of pulling in real-time weather radar and all that sort of stuff. Of course, we've got the radar in our nose, but you've got to be, you know, 80 miles from where the weather is for that radar to be able to see it. That sounds painful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you should not put the radar in your nose. That should be one of the basic things you learn uh, at initial training. Yeah, uh, you're probably right. And then you'd need to have paint black nose on because that would be the right time yeah. well so anyway when you got here what was it like was it uh, nice well i thought it was going to be i mean uh that everyone was forecasting uh, no uh delays they were using the easterly runways which was a bit of a shame because that meant we had to go uh to um the west side of the airport which is the bad weather side because uh, that's the side the uh, storm was going through in order to line up on the approach 
but uh, we trolled in uh, behind a you know a nice neat queue of airplanes. Uh, but from about ten thousand feet down, we started getting quite a bit of turbulence, and uh, uh, it, well, luckily we got the belts on nice and early, and the cabin was well secure, and the crew were all sitting down. So uh, yeah, we got thrown about a bit, uh, and then uh, the worst bit was probably on the approach from uh, five thousand feet downwards. Uh, may remembering that the airfield's a thousand feet, so it's four thousand feet above ground level. And uh, Mike had already told me that actually the surface wind where he lives, which wasn't far from the airport, um, was pretty good. And the uh, wind that the tower were giving was uh, only uh, from the south seven knots, and that's very mild. So uh, we were experiencing uh, over 50 knots uh, on the approach across. So that's, uh, for me, that, you know, then goes, right, well, that 50 knot wind is going to have to reduce to seven knots. So there's a 43 knot shear at some point so uh, uh that you know obviously makes you uh you you're a bit more aware of what might happen and we got bounced around a fair amount on the approach uh but luckily that that wind difference didn't really hit till we were more or less in the in the flare it was still a good 20 25 knots across as we came over the fence at least my first officer was calling that because he was keeping an eye on it for me so i had lined the airplane up uh well on the upwind side of the runway with a we had still a lot of crab on uh, and uh, the airplane straightened very nicely and uh, we got a nice smooth touchdown but just at that point of uh, in the flare and straightening the airplane out that's when we kind of got a little bit of a wobble in because the, obviously the I wind think, varied you know speaking of that i think that there's a video that's been <laughs> making uh, the rounds on the internet <laughs> that of uh, showing that landing that you uh, made in atlanta so maybe you think? i think we're going to talk about that uh, later think, i think show. that's a slightly different airplane from no? a slightly different well, airline with a slightly look, different pilot well they they yeah. look all the same to me <laughs> yeah that's right that, that's, that's just details so uh, yeah we we got it down all right and uh, apparently because uh, obviously when you're Sitting down the back and you're getting thrown around a bit during the approach, I think there's obviously a certain amount of apprehension. And uh, that gets, uh, you know, people then are a bit relieved when you manage to touch down nice and uh, smoothly. And uh, there was a round of applause. But, of course, being like 300 feet behind me, I never heard that because we're quite a long aeroplane. And uh, when people do that, you you don't get to hear. I mean, Mad Dog's quite long and thin, but you you can hear your your passengers applaud. No, I guess if they, uh, I I've heard it a few times. Um, and yeah, so they're they're in closer proximity to us than your particular layout. But um, but of course that means that uh, you'd have to actually be making good landings to actually hear applause. <laughs> so that might be why I never hear it. I don't know. I was going to make that point, but you beat me I can just it. tell. You had this certain <laughs> smile, this certain look about you, and I'm thinking, okay, I know where you're going yeah, now. Yeah, so, yeah. So we got in We got in all right, and we had uh, we still had 20 tons of gas on board when we uh, when we shut down. I mean, you don't even get airborne with 20 tons, do you? Uh, I know, that's no. Uh, we, I don't even think we can carry that much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's like 40,000 pounds. Uh, I, I can't remember the conversion factor. We don't yeah. Need pounds, okay. Um, because a, a ton, I don't know, maybe a, a an imperial ton or a British ton is different than a regular ton, but for us, 2,000 pounds is a ton. That's the number that I that comes to mind wow. for me. So I just doubled what, whatever you told me and made it thousands of pounds. Fair enough. But yeah, uh, yeah that, that, so it was nice to get in. And uh, the weather today looks a lot better. So uh, when Sunny, my uh, first officer, uh, takes us home, uh, hopefully you'll have an easier time of it. 
and uh, I drove down and uh, met up with uh, Sir Nick here at the hotel last night, and we went um, next door to an Irish bar of all places. You know, we're in the U.S. He flies in from Britain, and we go to an Irish pub, and uh, we had some good food and uh, some good drink, good conversation, and uh, did uh, some planning. You know what we should probably do? Um, speaking of planning, and we're in the intro portion of the show, why not just talk about uh, what we know as far as plans for episode 300? Oh, yeah. Why not? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so here's the deal. Um, our APG crew member, Dana Colton, uh, has very generously offered his fine home along with a very nice big green egg, which makes just absolutely wonderful stuff, smokes it and roasts it and cooks it up. And it's uh, really, really nice. Um, and uh, that is going to be the Saturday. I think I mentioned this before the Saturday after Thanksgiving day. So it's Thanksgiving weekend that Saturday. Don't worry. There's nothing going on that day here in the U S there are no football games. <laughs> There are no, you know, none of that stuff. It's uh, like it's dead. So why not come over to Dana's house in uh, Smyrna, Georgia, and we'll have information about how you can find it. If you're if you're wanting to join us for the big uh, episode 300 celebration um, and uh, if you indeed want to come by and uh, join our fun and frivolity, uh, please RSVP responde s'il vous plaît or whatever is that right? I, that sounds very good. Uh, uh, RSVP at three hundred at airlinepilotguy.com. Again, that's three zero zero at airlinepilotguy.com, and that uh, forwards to all of our addresses, so we can kind of keep track of potential numbers of folks that might be wanting to join us in the. Episode 300 celebration. Absolutely. Sounds like there'll be some good food to be had. Good food, good drink. IPAs. And uh, good uh, company. That's the oh, most important yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's a taken. Yeah. Or and, given. Uh, we'll, uh, that is a given and a taken. And uh, <laughs> so, we yeah, we plan on recording uh, an episode there. It probably won't be a normal episode. <laughs> they rarely are. Uh, yeah, that's true. So, anyway, that's what we know so far. So, for those of you who are in the general uh, APG headquarters, uh, Atlanta area, uh, region, uh, please plan on coming by and joining us in the celebration of 300 episodes. There is Masha in the chat room. Respondez, s'il vous plaît. So I, you know, I kind of got that. I probably didn't pronounce it very well with a, with a nice French, uh, accent, but whatever. That's very nice. That'll, that'll, that'll do for you, Jeff. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I had a nice meetup, a nice time uh, last week. I actually had that uh, four and a half day trip. And on, I believe it was Wednesday, we w- ended up in, or was it Thursday? It was one of those days, Thursday maybe. We ended up in uh, Akron, Canton, Ohio, and uh, was picked up. My first officer and I were picked up by Captain Rick Bell. Oh, what a lovely guy. Oh, yes. Yes, talking of Rick. Oh, yeah. Rick, I gave him the stuff that you gave me to give him. So. Uh, yeah, a challenge coin. Thank you very much, Rick. Really appreciate it. It's beautiful. And I do understand uh, the significance of these. So uh, uh, I'm just going to tap it now and see if uh, uh, if Jeff has his. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> you're supposed to have your own, not steal, mind you. Because, you know, a challenge coin, the challenge is that you tap the coin on the bar. And if... Uh, oh, here's the, mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if the uh, your fellows around you who's supposed to have their coin don't have it on their person and can't respond, then they have to buy the beer. So I think Jeff owes me a beer now. All right, I owe you a beer. Actually, you bought me bought beer all your beer night. last night. What you else did. do you want? <laughs> yeah, but that doesn't count. And, oh, by the way. By the way, I think that they should be aware of the fact that he, in order to entice me to come down and meet up with him, he promised me that he was going to give me a nice gift, a gift oh, of yeah. Bombay yeah. Sapphire yeah. gin, which I really enjoy. And uh, what what happened to the gin? Uh, it evaporated. Yeah, well, after it spilled over the floor, <laughs> yeah. I guess it eventually evaporated. Yeah, I, I got it uh, safely four and a half thousand miles across the world, and I got it uh, all the way to the airport, uh, sorry, the hotel foyer, and uh, it was sitting there in a duty-free bag on my suitcase, and as I reached forward to pick up my room key, I heard this crunch behind me, and that was that. Uh, what a... What a terrible sight. Yeah, it was a stink. Awful stink. That stuff smells. Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. not a gin fan, so bleh. Okay. Well, well you can drink that. I don't know. Well, you can't now. I would have was... come down. You wouldn't. You didn't have to buy the gin, <laughs> by the way, but I'm glad you, the, the thought that counts, right? Well, yeah, I, I will try my best next time. If I get another one, I'll, I'll but I can only bring one bottle at a time. And so. Yeah, I don't worry about it. Oh, and uh, the, the guy at, uh, at Customs Immigration. Uh, he said, you've got anything to declare? I said, uh, oh, just this bottle of gin, <laughs> but I think it's in my allowance. And he looked at me like it really wasn't in my allowance. I thought I'd like to bring in a liter. Is there some special rule for aircrew? And he just went, oh, go on then. Like he was doing yeah. me a favor. I was thinking, oh, no, I don't think there is. I think that's legit. Yeah. I, I thought it was. Yeah. Okay. Maybe he just thought it was weird that a captain was traveling with a full bottle of gin or something. Well, if I've been traveling with an empty bottle, that, that would even be more of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what happened. It must've evaporated and fly. It's a very dry environment. Oh, it is. It is very dry. Uh, anyway. So I, as I was saying earlier, I kind of got off the track there. Um, cause we talked about the, um, uh, the challenge coin and all yep. that kind of stuff yeah. in the patch. Um, so, uh, Rick picked up my first officer and I at the hotel right across from the, uh, Akron Canton airport. And we drove up to uh, Rick's place, and right before we got there, we ended up going to a Costco and uh, picked up some steaks and stuff, and then we went over to uh, Rick's house. He started up his barbecue, his grill, and uh, let's see, the lovely Erin, Mrs. Rick Bell, was there, and she was uh, fixing some great potato stuff, and uh, let's see, we were joined by Paul. Uh, and, uh, Paul, I'm sorry, you know, I don't know if I even remember what your last name is, but Paul, he's, uh, we've met up several times in the Canton, Akron, Canton area. And, uh, he lives in Warren, Ohio and, uh, he drove by and then James Balch was going to join us as well, but then something came up and he wasn't able to. So we missed you, James. Uh, we had a good time. It was great food. Uh, the steaks were perfect. Well, All the wasn't food. And James on a date. Yeah. That's what, yeah. That's yeah. what he said. Yeah. Well, I hope it went well. I hope it was worth yeah. it. Yeah, me too. So, I uh, just wanted to mention that. We didn't record. Uh-oh. He said it was a bad date. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, you should have gone over to yeah. uh, Rick's house then. Yeah. Uh, it has a beautiful home. 
and a beautiful wife, great food. Um, and he a fixed up. Oh, you does know he what? Have a sister. Uh, he does, but okay. she wasn't there. Oh, okay. Um, but um, uh, the drink that you know the oh, plane the tales, late night flight, late night flight. Um, Rick got all the uh, fixings for that and oh, brilliant. made up a few of those. Really good, by the way. And uh, if you want to know what we're talking about, just listen to. I don't know. It was a few episodes back where you talked about um, somebody Fitzpatrick and uh, a drink it. named for him. Yep, that, there you go. Late it night was, flight. Yeah, and, and I'm going to go and try and go to the the very bar in uh, New York um, next time I'm in there Excellent. and see if they can still make it there. That would be cool. Uh, well, and the other thing is, uh, I guess there was another drink called the Aviator, using Aviator vodka and some other stuff. It was really good too. Mm. He, he he managed. Sounds to like you had a good night. Sense. We did. We had a grand. I'm night. surprised you can remember it. I'm yeah surprised that we woke up the next day. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we everything in moderation, right? Okay. Anything else? Yeah. While we're uh... <laughs> uh, Tim, Tim, thank you very much indeed, Tim uh, Van Tim Ram. Van Ram uh, uh, this uh, lovely uh, hip flask has eventually caught up with me. Oh, and it, and it looks like it has something to do with San Fran on there, huh? <laughs> yeah, San Fran, San Franny. I don't know, Sandy Frisco. Frisco, that's the place. No, um, you're not supposed to say any of those. He he actually included uh, a letter of instruction on how I should refer to San Francisco. So I think uh, because it's such a lovely gift, and thank you very much indeed for this. Although I did note it was, it arrived empty. What can I say? Well, uh, it wasn't uh, actually empty. I Oh, really? <laughs> I'm just, it was empty. I didn't do. Uh, I didn't drink anything. I, I, I'm not sure if I believe you, um, but it's uh, it's very nice, San Francisco uh, hip flask. So thank you. I shall enjoy uh, imbibing from it at some appropriate point in the future. The San Francisco treat, ah. rice a roni, rice a roni. The something can't be beat. <laughs> That's an old advertisement for uh, a rice pilaf kind of uh, preparation uh, in a box and uh, so called rice aroni and it was it's the san francisco food show now yeah well i'm i'm sorry when you said san francisco i don't know why that popped into my head i have a weird I don't brain i think anybody does Jeff. yeah okay well time now for the java jive which means we're going to talk about the coffee fund Johnny, how much more I love tea, I love the java jive and it loves me, coffee and tea and the java in me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, all right, yes, while they continue singing the java jive in the background, let's talk about the coffee fund, shall we? Uh, we have a few people that used the coffee fund classic method since the last episode, they'd be Vernon Tryon. Dan Kalagian, I'm not sure about that one, but uh, sounds looks pretty decent. Kalagian, Kalagian, maybe, and uh, our friend Jeff Kalagian. Yeah, don't listen to <laughs> Captain Nick. That can't be right. Anyway, we're gonna, we're just going to call him Dan K, and also <laughs> Jeff M, Jeff Moeller, Jeff and Anissa, and I hope you're doing uh, better, Jeff. Finally, uh, have I mentioned that I do not enjoy? looking at facebook and dealing and interacting and you you did actually yeah, well landon sent me a message like weeks ago that's <laughs> all right uh, explaining uh you know, the, our concern uh, from jeff and but jeff is doing okay so um I'm very good to hear it jeff thanks for your contribution also 
we have something called Patreon, and you can become a patron of the show and get the APG crew logs. Uh, yeah, we did one last night. We did. Special one. It was awesome. We were drunk. Yes. Well, <laughs> no, we weren't that bad. Um, oh, weren't we? So, uh, yeah. So if you want to hear harder. drunken pilots and their crew logs, <laughs> you need to become a patron. And that you can do that by uh, heading over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. <laughs> I was going with a different URL. I don't know what I was talking about. Anyway, since the last program, we have uh, a new executive producer, Sean Harrell. And we have a new producer, Jeff Felmuth. Have you ever heard of that guy? Yeah, he's he drives um, antique airplanes around, doesn't he? But they're newer than mine. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Jeff uh, has been a contributor via the classic method, but now he wants to make sure he gets those crew logs, so he became a patron. Thank you, Jeff. And I I'm going to have to become a patron at this rate. Yes, you're going to have to. Oh, look. Oh, it's over. Okay, well, thank you, everyone, for your fine and generous contributions. Stand by for Wow, that was loud. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's start off with this one. I was going to talk about this on the last show, but kind of ran out of time. We had a lot of news. Um, it was on the aviation. Uh, <laughs> something I'm drawing a blank. What do you call it? The AH Aviation Herald. There we go. Uh, good thing I'm not flying today. Um, good old Simon Radke. I think that's the way you pronounce his name, his beautiful site with all kinds of great aviation news. Uh, this is uh, regarding a Vueling Airbus A320-200. Am I saying that right? Vueling? Have you ever yeah, heard that? Yeah, I believe anyone? so, although okay. I've never heard a local say it. Okay. From Zurich, Switzerland to Barcelona, Barcelona, Spain, with 126 passengers and six crew. was climbing out of Zurich's runway 28 when the crew stopped the climb at flight level 210 reporting navigation problems. The aircraft was provided with radar vectors for the return to Zurich, landed safely back on runway 14 about 30 minutes after departure. Emergency services received the aircraft and followed the aircraft to the apron. Switzerland's SUST, I'm not even going to attempt to guess what that no, stands they, they for. They just made it up. They okay. just strung a whole load of letters <laughs> together. Uh, reported on September 26th that the crew was unable to operate any of the VHF equipment. The aircraft was provided with radar vectors for the return and the visual approach to runway 14 landed safely. Uh, this occurrence was rated a serious incident, and the Aviation Herald received information that apart from not being able to operate the navigation equipment, additional faults occurred for the IRS, EIS, GPWS, FCU, and FADEX of both engines. It's like a lot of electrical problems going yeah, on. And a lot of systems that aren't really connected. Uh, I mean, I had a look at this and tried to, admittedly, uh, I don't have the 320 um, uh, manual. So I, I just pull it up right here on yeah. the internet, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but I did the closest I could, which is uh, my 330 manuals, just to see if I could find a failure that affected all those systems. And 
Um, there are some that affect uh, many of them, but the one thing I couldn't work out was why the FedEx were being affected. Now, the FedEx are usually, generally speaking, independent of the aircraft electrical system. They they get a generator, they, they have power generated by the engine to feed the FedEx, um, and uh, so that they can operate uh, almost when the aircraft has very little else going for it. Um, so I'm sure they receive signals from various other systems and computers and everything else. Yeah, but there's usually sufficient backups in the FedEx of them allowed allow them to operate almost yeah. regardless of what else is going on around them. Hmm. So anyway, uh, so uh, the inertials, the uh, EIS, Engine Interface Systems, I guess that stands for, uh, the GPWS, yeah, straightforward electrical failure of certain buzzes could cause that. Uh, the FCU as well, the um, the flight control unit i don't know i'm not very good with acronyms i i know what i mean if someone says the sv fcu i can point out it but i'm not very good at remembering why the same way i just like yeah. i know that that acronym means this thing right here but i'm not sure exactly what that acronym stands for exactly yeah, so i'm probably making a complete hash of it but uh i try to find something i mean someone out there i'm sure captain analog has got a spare moment although i think he's very busy looking for a new job uh can help me out all there are some 320 guys uh, i don't know if those lovely 320 guys that do the podcast uh, listen to us oh yeah but if they could uh, fire us um uh, a little bit of technical information as to what they think the snag was i'd be fascinated good idea what, what is it called the a320 podcast yeah that's exactly yeah. right and they, they they're actually a very good uh, technical uh, experts so uh, that they are quite likely to know. Um, and I was a bit confused by the fact that the crew were unable to operate any of the VHF equipment. So how was the radio working? So I don't think that's quite a complete report. Or Perhaps maybe they, it was like stuck on one frequency and yeah. they couldn't change it or something. That's what maybe. I was thinking. Yeah. But uh, I'm also trying to think of a, a problem that would solely affect VHF equipment. So I'm thinking, well, the VOR, the uh, VHF radios, uh, how are they somehow linked no, I don't know. So, very confusing. I'd love to find out more about it, but uh, we'll have to wait for the report to come out. I guess. I guess, yeah, kind of a kind of a mystery. So, yeah. if we learn any more about it, or the A three twenty guys uh, might have a little bit more information about it, or perhaps yeah. uh, my personal feeling is they parked too close to a Boeing on their previous sector. Hmm. They got infected. What can I say? Not much. Dangerous. I'm. I'm trying to find a, a sound clip to play that might <laughs> express what I uh, what I'm feeling right I now. I can make one for stupid you. Stupid does, sir. <laughs> okay. No, I was thinking more like <laughs> <laughs> Well, we have that one as well. Hey, this one got my attention. I was looking at uh, I believe this uh, was on the FlightAware website, uh, one of their squawks, but uh, I guess the actual article comes from the sun.co.uk. Is that a is that a, a reasonable um, Source? It's a tabloid. Okay, well then, we're just going to read it anyway. Um, a man in his 20s is pictured below. Okay, you can't see that. Uh, but you'll look at the show notes and you'll click on the link and you can look at this article that we're looking at. A German national arrested for trying to carry Mother of Satan explosive onto passenger jet in Sweden. I've never heard of Mother of Satan. That does not sound good. No, it's, it's the... Uh, uh, I, I, IS or ISIS or whatever you like to call that terrorist group. It's their word for this homemade. Uh, T-A-T-P bomb. Yeah. 
this explosive that they can you can brew up with relatively easy to acquire uh, ingredients. You can brew it up in your kitchen, and if it doesn't blow you up there, then you can take it up and blow up innocent people with it. Wow. Uh, he was stopped at Gothenburg's uh, Landvetter Airport on Thursday morning trying to board a flight bound for an EU country. Uh, let's see. The German national in his 20s sparked a major security response. Part of the airport was shut down while a bomb squad assessed a device believed to be a mother of Satan explosive. Photos published by local media show a man wearing a white hooded top being led away by police at around 8 a.m. yesterday. I don't know what day this was, but it was relatively recently. Uh, The suspected bomb is also seen in luggage on a security conveyor. So they have a picture of the the bomb in one of the bins on the security conveyor. Um, Let's see. So... Uh, they shut down the airport or part of it for a while just to kind of, you know, take care of the security issue. And then part of the article, I think toward the end, they have a they have like a video of some dude showing you how to make the bomb, which I don't know. That's a very good idea to be <laughs> actually linking to a, a video on uh, YouTube or whatever. No, showing that how to may do not this. be the best. <laughs> yeah. airline pilots if. Uh, you know, that may not be the best idea. No. Uh, but anyway, we'll, uh, we'll include the this. The FBI uh, banging on our door. <laughs> yeah. Including this uh, in the, the link in the show notes if you want to read. But that, that got my attention. Hopefully, you know, they aren't successful in bringing one of these things on board an airplane because I guess it's going to make a mess of it. Uh, yeah, I'm very glad they uh, they picked up on it. Um, they Nowadays, they have uh, much increased uh, chemical uh, detection. I don't know how about you, Jeff, but I regularly uh, I have a, a chemical swab put over my hands and uh, yeah, my uh, baggage uh, when I go through security. And uh, there are uh, explosive sniffer dogs now. A great more uh, in uh, their presence is seen a lot more uh, in the queues uh, going through security uh, to try and isolate these problems. So, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's great. I'm great. They, I'm very pleased they got this guy. Uh, and cause, uh, he could have made a you know, big mess. The last time I went through known crew members security at uh, Atlanta, they did the, the swabbing thing. And I said, Oh, don't mind that white powder. That's just the cocaine. It's not bomb <laughs> residue at all. <laughs> Badoom, bam, just Badoom, kidding. Bam. Of course. Yeah. And, uh, this one was sent by someone <laughs> to us. And it's a, uh, it's a video of the inside of a glider where the glider is attempting a takeoff. And I don't know, it may have been around for a while. I think somebody in the chat room before we started recording the show today was saying that they think they use this as a kind of a learning um, experience for uh, people uh, flying gliders. And what could go wrong on a uh, a glider tow, I guess, uh, mm. there's one way to launch a glider. Yeah, first time air- I've seen it though. And uh, I think it's pretty common here in the States. That's that's the normal way that gliders are launched in the States. But I understand in Britain and maybe other European countries, it's like a winch or something. That- yeah, we when I learned to glide, it was commonly uh, a winch, a big old Bedford with a huge, great big drum and a metal cable going, uh, you know, a few uh, thousand meters out to where the aircraft were parked. And then uh, the, the winch driver would tow you up and, the, you know, you get to about a thousand feet over the winch uh, you release and off you go. But uh, if you want to get decent soaring, I think uh, a target is the best way to do it. And I think most decent glider schools, even in the UK, have both uh, available. Certainly winching is a, um, a lot uh, cheaper. So this video here, and uh, thank you to whomever 
Yeah, sent this. please uh, write in again and let us know because uh, we have so many uh, methods of inputting uh, feedback that sometimes uh, if uh, Evernote doesn't cross uh, copy across uh, all the details, we kind of lose track of uh, who sent it. So uh, my apologies for that because it was my fault. And uh, I, I had a quick hunt through all the usual feeds and I couldn't find uh, who was sent it. So please let us know. I'm sure can... somebody will raise their hand and say, it was me. Please, yep. Oh, yeah. We'll get 10 people raising their hands going, yeah, okay, it was me. Well, I'm Spartacus. Yes. So we're going to play, and this is a video, mind you. And again, we'll I'll make it so that you can actually see this video. Uh, again, a link in the show notes. But we're going to play some of the audio here because it's 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 actually kind of amusing. So again, it's a uh, looks like a GoPro or some kind of a camera mounted in the uh, cockpit, uh, kind of shooting over the shoulder of the um, the glider pilot. And so you can see the controls for the what's the correct one? Spoiler, not the speed brake. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, or maybe it's, it's a speed brake or not the spoiler. Yeah, I don't know. Pip, Pip, will, Pip is the one that knows Pip all will this. Correct us, or perhaps uh, yeah. Burr will. Anyway, um, and uh, as they're being towed, the uh, the spoiler handle kind of pops out of position. And so, in other words, the spoilers come up. And uh, apparently, the tow plane had such a time trying to get this thing airborne. It finally said, well, that's enough. I give up. And he just basically released the glider. You're on your own. And and you can hear the... Um, the exclamations of, yes, poor chap. <laughs> of frustration. <laughs> so here, let's take a listen. Okay, so here we go. Uh, we're in the glider, and you can see the through the windscreen, you can see the uh, tow plane um, perched ahead. And uh, the guy just took his hat off and kind of waved it. I guess that must be the signal for the tow plane to uh, to go. I don't know. Well, I, usually you doff your hat when a lady walks by, but... Well, maybe uh, that's what happened. Yeah. Maybe a lady <laughs> walked by. Okay, here we go. We're starting to move along the grass field. Got some rattling around. He's act activating the the uh, the stick. Now, I see his left hand is on the what I guess would be the release uh, knob for the cable connecting him to the tug. That's where normally we'd put our hands on the throttle, wouldn't we, Jim? Yeah. But there is no throttle. Kind of weird. I think he must be airborne now. Yeah. But he's not got very high. And the tug seems to be struggling a wee bit. He's, he blurts out some kind of a frustrated expletive. Looks like... Yeah, the maybe... Okay, now he's airborne. Yeah, he's muttering about speed, I think. He's probably about 50 feet, perhaps a little less, and they're not climbing very much. Shit. Oh, oh, oopsie. Oh, now that now the, he's the oh tugs dropped him. So, <laughs> you know what, though, when I saw that that last time we just yeah. watched it, there was a huge ditch. Yeah, yeah, on the right. He's lucky he didn't go into that. No, exactly right. It looked like a, a well, they've been on a lot of uh groundworks there and uh, he landed just beside this enormous great big ditch wow that someone had dug Ooh. so i think that somebody whoever sent that in is trying to encourage us to uh go out there and get our glider license uh, yes i know i i really think pip ought to think again because he's just 
got his license now. He, he's fit solo on these, so I hope that doesn't happen to him. But I think the big lesson is here is to do your pre-takeoff checks completely and thoroughly. Yes. Including latching the spoiler stroke speed brake lever in right. its locked position. Making sure it's, yeah. Although I must admit, I, someone perhaps can explain to me why a glider's uh, spoilers stroke speed brakes uh, are d designed to be sucked out. Surely the safest thing is for them to be blown in rather than sucked out, if you pardon my that's what she said comments. <laughs> um, because, uh, you know, obviously you don't really want them to come out when they shouldn't. So uh, why, why don't they design them to do the opposite of what they actually do? Because I believe that's what happened. The lever wasn't locked. So as he uh, began to get flying speed, the uh, these lift... Um, destroying devices uh, deployed themselves, which doesn't seem a very safe uh, thing for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was an interesting video. And uh, we will, uh, again, put a link to that in the show notes. You can watch it yourself and cringe. <laughs> oh, oh, Liz is asking me to watch my language. Oh, yes, please. Yeah, it must be a family show. Yes. Oh, did somebody say family show? Uh, it depends how quickly you can press... Uh Family show, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Family show. Thank you. Yeah, I'm trying to do all this on one screen. Oh, by the way, for those of you who are watching us record this live on the video, um, the reason why I didn't share that video with you um, is because sometimes when I do that and I try to go back to the camera, the camera just goes, eh, I don't want to work anymore. And then <laughs> you don't have any more camera of us sitting in front of That's this desk true. in this beautiful hotel room. So we don't want to deprive you of that. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The chat room is going, yes, yes, do it, do it. <laughs> they don't care about us. Oh, that's all the news we had this week. Kind of a slow news week, I guess. Well, it's only been a few days. Yeah, it has again. Yeah, just a few days. So that's good because now we have a lot more time to cover your feedback. So with that, let me see if I can find the feedback sound effect and we'll move on. message. All righty. Let us start with uh, this one sent in by Kevin. Hello, APG crew. I'm a longtime listener of the APG podcast. This summer, we went to San Diego area to visit family. I was very fascinated on the final approach to into SAN uh, San Diego with the hills very close by. My question is this. Have any of you APGers had any experience flying to this airport? I think this is a fascinating place to take pictures I've attached two pictures, one that I, uh, was one that I had taken during uh, doing some plane spotting and the other of a screenshot that was featured on a TV show in the U.S. through the decades. They mentioned PSA Flight 182. I'm behind episodes, but I always fast forward to the old pilot's plane tales. Well, then why are we even spending time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> doing Kevin's feedback if he's just going to fast forward to the plane tales? Oh, I don't know. I bet he stops at his own feedback. What do you bet? Uh, yeah, I'd say that's pretty uh, good. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Kevin. I'm sorry that I read that part. Anyway, Kevin Lakeville, and uh, he has a beautiful picture of an airplane. Uh, looks like just about to land on uh, what I'm guessing is 2-7, heading off to the west with the sun in the background. And then, of course, the horrific picture that was taken by somebody on the ground, obviously, of the uh, PSA 182, that was a 727 that uh, uh, had a mid-air collision 
and was one of the catalysts to uh, install traffic collision avoidance systems on uh, passenger airplanes uh, at first and then both passenger and cargo aircraft. Um, and uh, that was, you know, a terrible accident killed all on board and uh, killed some people on the ground as well. I think that Nick is looking up the disaster right now. Yeah, I am. They were on an instrument approach, weren't they? Uh, no, they were on a visual and they were, and visual. the traffic was called out to them. Okay. And they, and they had the transcripts. Uh, if you read the accident report and there were, there was some conversation going on in the cockpit and, you could tell that there were the guy in the jump seat, or maybe it was the first officer, was kind of concerned to go. You know what happened to that traffic that we were supposed to see? Or I think they misidentified another piece of traffic. They thought that that was the traffic that air traffic control was calling out to them, but I guess it wasn't. And basically, they they if they even had the original traffic in sight, they lost it, or perhaps they never had it, and uh, ended up uh, hitting it from above with the right wing, I believe, of the uh, seven twenty seven and then it was just a matter of seconds after the impact that the uh, airplane was just out of control and crashed. Yeah, I'm looking at some of the transcript here. They they were having a pretty relaxed conversation on the flight deck, uh, it seems. Uh, a lot of laughter and uh, chatting. And uh, they did, uh, okay, we've got that other 12. So I'm guessing they, that in American, that means I can see the other aircraft at 12 o'clock. Yep, but, uh, straight ahead. Uh, but they obviously misidentified uh, the actual aircraft they were supposed to be seeing and uh, collided with it. Yeah, of course, killing the uh, the two, I believe, on board the uh, the smaller uh, general aviation aircraft and uh, everybody on board the uh, the PSA, Flight 182. And as I mentioned, it, it crashed into a neighborhood and killed some people on the ground as well. So it was a, it was a big tragedy. In fact, yeah. I think at that time, it was like one of the most tragic in the u.s as far as the number of passengers and people killed in the accident i think it was only eclipsed not too long thereafter by the dc-10 american airlines dc-10 that um the one of the wing mounted engines actually came off the airplane and took with it much of the spoilers on that side of the airplane as well as hydraulics and everything else and that crash and that was taken off out of o'hare i believe um yeah uh, it sounds like uh, the color of the Cessna was very similar to the uh, general color of the residential area uh, over which it was flying, so it would have blended in. Uh, and even though there were actually four pilots uh, on the flight deck, so there were the two operating pilots, uh, the flight engineer, and a deadheading uh, captain on the jump seat, they're all looking for him. Uh, none of them managed to see him. Of course, uh, if you're on a three-degree glide slope and the guy is going to collide with you, he's actually going to be exactly three degrees below the horizon and, and effectively stationary in your windscreen. And uh, this comes down to the problems of um, acquiring things visually. The the Your eyes are damn clever devices, but... Uh, um, they rely on relative movement to attract your attention. So your peripheral vision will quite easily pick up something that's moving because our eyes are really designed from olden days when we used to hunt and something that darted out of the grass would uh, and moved would quite quickly attract our attention. The uh, portion of your eye that is uh, very accurate and will focus and give you a lot of detail is about the size of your fist 
uh, when held at arm's length in front of you. So it's actually a relatively small area, and your eyes uh, and your brain rely on the fact that uh, you pick up peripheral vision in your um, the area outside that, that center area, and you swing your eyes onto it, and then you can focus on it uh, very accurately because if something is uh, on a collision course, it's not going to be moving relative, you, relative to you until it blossoms in size. And you have to be very close for something to change from a little dot to suddenly being a big aircraft. And as it gets to that point when you're extremely close to it and suddenly its size uh, grows rapidly, that's when your eyes usually attracted to it, unfortunately, uh, in an aircraft, our closure speed is usually so high, that's usually too late uh, to do much about it. Hmm. Well, and yes, I, um, anything else about the crash there? But uh, we, um, he asked uh, at the beginning of his feedback, have any of us APGers had any experience flying into, out of uh, San Diego, uh, Sierra Alpha November? And yes, I have, uh, oh, both excellent. in the 727 several times, and a few times in the L-1011 as well. And a lot of people make a lot of this airport as like there's a parking garage that a parking deck that uh, is is looks like it's pretty close to the uh, glide path uh, when you're landing to the west. And um, it's it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, it, it visually it does appear like why, why is this building so close to the uh, glide path into this runway? But uh, it's you're actually quite quite a ways there's some really pretty good clearance there but uh, a lot of people kind of freak out about that but uh, otherwise it's a pretty straightforward airplane air, airport to get into uh, now the approach procedures these days uh, some rnav approaches do bring you in very very close to the uh, surrounding mountains um, hills and mountains uh, just to the east of the airport and uh, that can be interesting uh, but back when i was doing it we didn't have those uh, procedures and uh, yeah, a beautiful place. San Diego is a beautiful city. Great airport, I think. And uh, that's all I have to say about that. No, I'd like to fly into there one day. You should. Yeah. Perhaps you could take me there. I'll take you there. Oh, well, gent. All right. Tom writes, I've been listening to your show off and on for the past two years, but now I think I've caught it. APG Syndrome. APG Syndrome. So it looks like, sounds like Tom Vulcan has the syndrome. However, he doesn't think he'll be taking any go around a cylinder anytime soon. I love listening to your Airbus Boeing banter, the plane tails installments, and other such peculiarities of your show, which make it so enjoyable. Again, well, it's a we're pretty just, peculiar show. We're going to have to take that as a compliment. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm uh, 15 and living in Australia with the dream of becoming an airline pilot. Captain Nick, I was born in the UK and have the intention of moving to England and working for a European carrier. I'm eyeing up the airline-sponsored ab initio courses delivered at, if you can say the name on air, sure, CTC or L3 Airline Training Academy or their integrated ATPL course. My question is, should I apply or try and work for a short-haul carrier first, such as EasyJet, and then later on in my career transfer to long-haul operations, or does it not matter which I should do? 
Any that, advice? That's an easy one. I, yeah. I, I think the, the well-trodden path uh, from CTC, and you don't need uh, any previous flying experience. You know, it'd be nice just to uh, um, really have perhaps been an air cadet, uh, perhaps uh, done your PPL. That might be great, but it's not essential. CTC will take guys really uh, from almost not having seen an airplane all the way through to having uh, an air transport pilot's license that they can uh, subsequently use once they have the flying experience. Um, and if you do one that's tied to an airline like uh, Easy, um, then uh, you will have a way into that airline. And obviously you have to pay back a lot of your costs. So for quite some time, your pay will be capped and uh, it'll be uh, a portion of your pay will be fed back in to uh, recover the cost of your training. And of course, if you don't uh, succeed in your training, um, you'll be vulnerable for those costs. So just bear that in mind. But uh, my, my feeling is the, the path through short haul, flying multiple sectors regularly, getting that uh, experience on a slightly smaller airliner before you move on to the big long-haul aircraft where you um, don't build up a lot of experience uh, you, because your flights are so long and because of the uh, they're quite debilitating and you get long gaps between flights. Uh, you need to recover and rest. Um, then uh, you don't build up your experience that way. So I think your plan is great, but just, you know, plan on uh, getting a cadetship, doing your training at CTC, getting into a short hire line, perhaps uh, doing 10 or 15 years there. And then when you feel like uh, you've got all the skills you need, you've got lots of marvelous uh, handling skills, you can fly that uh, A320 or similar into uh, any airfield uh, using any type of an approach, then take all that experience and go to the long haul world where you can sit back and relax and you know, you'll be a great pilot forever. Um, but, uh, it's very hard to t start off in the long haul world and build up that experience. I think that's uh, personally, I think that's a, a mistake, but isn't it a concern? Uh, because if you get on with, let's say Ryanair flying short haul or EasyJet. Um, that that's a seniority-based system, right? And so you're building up seniority and everything else, and then you leave that airline to fly with, say, I don't know, one of the bigger long-haul outfits. Don't you start right back from the yeah, bottom th again? That is a floor of the system. Yeah. But uh, my feeling is that it's a, it's a move worth making, and a lot of airline pilots do exactly that. They uh, spend five or ten years uh, in the short-haul world, and even sometimes with a command, they'll then go, right, I, my dream is to fly long haul. I really want that lifestyle. And so now I will accept the fact that I'm going to go backwards uh, and, uh, in pay, and I'll take a contract with a long haul airline, uh, and on I go. Of course, um, uh, Tom is only 15, so you know, in three or four years when you've there won't be pilots anymore no i'm sorry <laughs> yes. I, I, I thought you were going somewhere else with that uh, no, i'm thinking that uh, they'll the the uh, the demand for pilots will have increased rapidly and there may be a lot easier uh, options a lot a lot of options available to you which will cost you a lot less so uh, that's really um, i think you're ideally placed if you've got ambitions now at the age of 15 i think by the time you have got your um, university degree and whatever subject you like, uh, because it doesn't really make any difference to the airline world what kind of a degree you have. I uh, don't think you're um, you're expected to come out with some kind of aviation degree. 
uh, don't. Uh, just do whatever you think uh, is good uh, and that you enjoy and that you might be able to use perhaps as a second occupation if one day you lose your medical. You've always got to bear that in mind. And then, uh, you know, with your ed education finished, uh, then uh, look for a course and I'm sure you'll be snapped up. Absolutely. Good advice. Good advice. So uh, thanks again, Tom. Uh, good luck with all that. Please keep us informed. Uh, your journey. It's always interesting to all of us to hear how everybody is uh, coming along and getting to where they want to go. Absolutely. Um, I believe that uh, another podcast, at least one other podcast has already talked about this, but we'll just quickly mention it. Uh, somebody had sent in, I think it was Stuart uh, from uh, the uh, UK, uh, this article regarding this BBC, uh, well, it was on BBC News uh, regarding twin airline pilots retire by landing at Heathrow together, I think within like 30 seconds of, of each other uh, landing at Heathrow uh, for their retirement flights. And uh, the pair who were born 30 minutes apart have clocked up 45,000 flying hours between them, said that they had often been mistaken for each other during their careers, but never flew together because they were both captains. Jeremy joined British Airways 30 years ago in 87 while Nick joined from British Midland in 2012 when it was taken over by British Airways. Nick said, did I say something wrong? <laughs> I, I don't know. I think okay. so. No? You were I looking at me it. like I said something. No, I, it was my name. You just said my name. Oh, so. not, not this Nick. Oh, okay. Another right. Nick. It said Nick right here in the article. I guess oh, one of those okay. twins is Nick. Oh, okay. Right. So Nick said, not this one sitting right next to me, <laughs> Jerry had never mentioned to his colleagues at British Airways that he had a twin brother who flew for British Midland. One day... A few years ago, a British Airways pilot strode over to me at Heathrow and asked what on earth I thought I was doing dressing up as a, in a British Midland uniform. <laughs> it took a bit of explaining to convince him that I was not Jeremy, my twin brother. Uh, that's kind of a funny story. I love it. That's excellent. Anyway, so they go on to talk about their, their flying careers and everything else, but that's pretty cool that uh, they ended up flying for the same company and they both retired almost almost simultaneously. So that's one of those... Feel good stories, I guess. He retired at sixty. Oh well. So they they retired. I don't know whether they, that's when their contract has to finish. Would I don't know. Yeah, I have a feeling it might. Okay. But uh, with our outfit, they could have carried on to sixty-five. Mm -hmm. But of course, the one thing you can't do then is do a landing on your sixty-fifth birthday, because uh, no, it would have to be your your fine at sixty-five, sixty-sixth birthday. Okay. Because then your medical would have run out, so you'd be a day late. And a dollar short. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, let's move on then. Liz sent us a really nice article. Again, we're not going to read it or talk. No, I, I just did that wrong. You can fly until you're 65, so be the 64th. There goes Day our accuracy rating again. For, for <laughs> I corrected myself. We just dipped back below 50%. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> so you'd be 64 and 364 days. There you go. I think. Okay. If you say so, I don't know. That's just too much math for me yeah, to do it in is public. Yeah, too. <laughs> um, anyway, Liz uh, sent us this nice article from hbr.org. I have no idea what that is. Uh, yeah, it's Harvard Business Review. Oh, Harvard. And, Harvard. Uh, I've I read it. I've actually read this I didn't this read article. most of it. I didn't finish the entire thing. It's a good article talking about automation and uh, uh, the the title of it is the tragic crash of air france flight 447 shows the unlikely but catastrophic consequences of automation and it's a it's a very well done 
article. Anything you want to say about it uh, other than they should really click on it and read it? Well, they can click on it and read it. I, I'm going to contradict you, Jeff, because I didn't actually like the article very much. Oh, okay. Um, I have to say, I think they just regurgitated an awful lot of stuff and left out an awful lot of very important detail. And, and I, as I began reading it, I thought, well, actually, this is not written by an airline pilot or anyone who seems to be in the industry. And uh, it turns out that... Uh, it was written by a professor of uh, University of Edinburgh Business School, uh, a guy who's a lecturer uh, at the University of Edinburgh Business School and a senior lecturer of the University Edinburgh Business School. Um, so we've got three people who are looking at it from what seems to me to be uh, not a very analytical uh, point of view. Um, and uh, they, they make some pretty sweeping and generalized statements in it rather than going into the detail of why it occurred. And I think personally that there are some much better um, analysis of these uh, of this particular incident. And I would like to recommend one in particular who happens to be an Acme pilot. Oh, wow. All right. I'm not sure if he's still flying or not if re- or if he's retired. His name is Bill Palmer. He wrote a great book, uh, the title Understanding Air France 447. Bill um, has a lot of experience on the Airbus 330 and, in fact, was uh, uh, an instructor in the training department on it. And he does does a very in-depth analysis on this particular accident flight and uh, what happened during it. And so, if anything, I think that this is at least one that you can uh, check out. They do have a Kindle edition, also paperback. Again, Understanding Air France four four seven i highly recommend it yeah it looks like the kindle edition is quite cheap at a fiver so uh yeah it'd be worth doing absolutely all right well uh thanks liz for sending us that link to that uh, awful article <laughs> no no i think it's probably got some good points uh but uh, <laughs> i think there are some better ones out there. i must have been drinking when i was reading it it didn't <laughs> seem that bad to me okay uh and speaking of drinking <laughs> and flying Liz also sent us this, Airport Bars You Want to Get Stuck In. And uh, it's a great article by uh, Stephen Beaumont, who is a writer uh, uh, in the craft beer world and, I guess, other other uh, drink-related uh, stuff. And he talks about several airports around the world, uh, Munich, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, I think Atlanta International is one that was mentioned, uh, Munich, Germany, did I mention that one? Yeah, so. that, that looks good. The Munich one looks good. Yeah, it was a, like a whole, like a real brewery in the airport itself. I mean, that's that's pretty much apart from you know, the fact the they look like they're out in the open air with huge, great big glass ceilings and things. It looks yeah, very pleasant. Helsinki is another one. Helsinki, Finland, uh, Victoria, uh, British Columbia. I'm assuming uh, Atlanta, Georgia, as I mentioned, Atlanta International, London at the Gatwick Airport, um, Nicholas Culpepper Pub and Dining. I guess is listed here as well. And I've just done Gatwick. I didn't spot that. Well, it's probably best, you know, that you stayed away from the bar. I, I went to the Jamie Oliver one. Who's one of those celebrity chefs. Oh, yeah. We, we actually know who Jamie Oliver is here. Oh, really? uh, yeah. Okay. He, and one of the food channel or food network, uh, that kind of thing, uh, had a, had a show on it. Um, anyway, so if you want to read the, uh, the top airport bars to get stuck in, uh, click on that link in the show notes. 
Um, oh, is somebody making fun of the way that I'm pronouncing things? I can't imagine that Ivor, ever happening. That Neff Gielshin is terrible. <laughs> oh, I get it. Uh, like I'm drunk. Okay. Um, let's see. Dimitri sent us in some feedback. His uh, Dimitri Chevata, I think, is the way he pronounced his name. He's from Italy, and he sent us some audio feedback. So let's take a listen. Hi, guys. Uh, nice meeting you. This is uh, Dimitri from Italy, a flight instructor. And um, so a lot of guys that come out of uh, the school I teach for, uh, they work in, guess what, Irish Acme, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, yes, I would say this is a, a fair name for <laughs> the company. And, uh, you know, when uh, these guys, they come back to our school for uh, renewing their single engine piston or multi-engine piston, they tell us about, uh, you know, rumors uh, from the company. So I would say this is a uh, uh, rumors that I get from all the people, all uh, my students that work for them. And uh, um, so maybe we can, uh, we can understand a little bit uh, better how that company works. Now the company basically uh, we can divide the company in uh, in uh, two segments. Now they they pay they pay you very poorly. They don't give you any uh, benefit. Uh, however, in their uh, in their favor, they open the door for your airline career and they train you very well. So how does it work? Generally, you get out of the uh, of the flight school. Uh, you send an application to Acme Irish. Acme Irish, uh, you know, since <laughs> since they're very smart, they also make money with the selection process because you have to pay three hundred uh, pounds uh, to be selected. Because uh, come on, you're paying. You you are using their simulator. You're using their captain time to select you. So you have to pay for these things, right? So um, probably they have like uh, 10 guys uh, a day that they select, uh, but only two of them will actually become their pilots. And uh, okay, once you're in, you have to pay for your own uniform because uh, they will not pay for that. Uh, they send you to a special place which produces uniform for them. They take measure, your, your measures and you get your uniforms. You will not get uh, any food from the plane unless you pay for it and uh, so it's better if you bring your own food when you work for them um let's say what do you have to pay as well at ah, the type rating of course ah, the type rating for a 737 30,000 is on you uh, the board and lodging of wherever they need you is on you so even if you're a captain and you work for them and you generally base in rome and uh, Dear Captain, this week we need you in Madrid. Okay, you go to Madrid. You, you know, you bother about uh, reserving a bed and breakfast, an hotel, or something, a restaurant, and because it's all on you. Even when, even we have to say that when you work out of your base, they give you a higher salary. And in generally, this higher salary covers uh, your cost. But, you know, uh, they don't deal with the bed and breakfast. It's your business. And they will not, mm, you will not just land and have a van that brings you to the hotel. Uh, you, you have to take a taxi and find your own way. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, you have to pay for the selection, the type rating, the uniform, the food, board and lodging, and uh, you're paid very, very poorly, meaning that uh, you get about, uh, I'm telling you about net salary, uh, about uh, 3,000, uh, 2,500 yeah, euros per month when you are a junior first officer then about uh, 3,000 and something when uh, you are a first officer and about 5,000 when you are a captain. I'm trying to give you these um, uh, salaries, uh, numbers, uh, uh, you know, let's say f 3,000, 5,000 are euros, dollars or whatever, um, because anyway, that is the range, you know, we don't mind if it's uh, 4,800 4, or 5,200, okay. And uh, this is a range and um, as you know, you have to open your own LTD company in, I in Ireland. This LTD company deals with another LTD company that actually sells your skills to Irish ACME. So you cannot claim any benefit, any work, uh, uh, low, any employee role, rules or any employer. Uh, laws, uh, any union uh, contract, uh, you can mm, claim anything because uh, it's a, a contract between two LTD companies. Two L so even in, and even if you uh, want to bring to court the company that has uh, hired you and that is uh, selling uh, your piloting skills, uh, the, 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 the middle company, the filter company, is like uh, a company that owns uh, a couple of computers and they are the ones selling to Acme Irish your work. So even if you bring them to court, you know, the only thing you get from them is probably, and even if you win, you know, there's a couple of old computers and uh, thank you very much and bye-bye. So uh, mm, uh, this, this is why a lot of times you hear people say, hey, they pay you seven, eight thousand. And then uh, when you talk to them, they say, no, it's five thousand because they pay to the LTD 8,000, then you have to pay the taxes in Irish, in Ireland, sorry, and then you have to pay the taxes in your own country where you live. Uh, you know, so it's also a mess from a, a, an organization point of view because you, as, as a pilot, you have to become almost a lawyer to understand how much you have to pay in Ireland, how much you have to pay where you live, like Italy or France or wherever you are, and uh, during the international flights uh, from, uh, I don't know, Spain to Germany, then you are actually working outside of your country. So, you know, it's a mess. It's a mess, but, you know, eventually uh, you will solve this legal mess and pay your taxes. And uh, so at the end, uh, that's why I'm, I'm, a lot of times you hear people say they pay you 8,000 and then other people say, no, it's 5,000, because at times it's uh, gross, at times it's net. Uh, what I gave you before, guys, is net. And um, so, um, this said, we have to say something also uh, good, very good about uh, Irish uh, ACME, because uh, it is also true that they are uh, an open gate uh, to the airline world. So when you are a student and you're just out of uh, the fly school and, um, you know, you work for them and you, you're taken by, um, you know, from the company, then you pass from the Cessna 172 to a Boeing 737 right away. And uh, in five years, because they have a huge turnover of pilots, in five years, most likely you will be a captain. 
So imagine you're out of the school when you're 19, when you're 21, you have your ATPL because you have done enough hours in the company that you can have an, uh, the, the complete ATPL license. And uh, after five years, you're a captain with about 4,000 hours of flight. So imagine what, you're 25, you're a, ca a captain, and uh, you have 4,000 hours on a Boeing 737, and the market is completely open for you. And there is no other company in Europe uh, that does that, that makes you do a career bang like this. You know, generally you have to finish the school, to do parachuting, then to do uh, glider towing, then uh, some, uh, I don't know, regional, uh, regional propeller plane, then maybe a private jet, and then finally you get to the airline. No way. You, with them, in a, in a, couple, of <laughs> in a couple of months, you're in the airline industry. And um, this is great, you know, for a lot of guys, and they know very well that they treat you like, uh, uh, but uh, <laughs> even if they treat you like this, you know, the, the opportunity they give you is, is immense compared to any other company. And uh, or another good thing, uh, thing that, they, that they do is that they give you a very, very good training. There are companies in Europe that they say, if you come from Irish Acme and you want to work for us, you know, just send your CV. We don't even select you. We don't even, you don't even have to pass a selection. We trust you. If you've been working with them, you're good for us as well. And uh, lately, one of the company who did that was uh, Acme Norway, because in Norway, there is an Acme as well that wants to <laughs> compete uh, with the Irish Acme. And they said exactly that, you know, uh, if you come from Irish Acme, we hire you right away. And guess what? We pay you double because in Norway conditions uh, are much better than in Ireland in terms of uh, laws and contracts. So guess what? A bunch of pilots from Irish ACME, you know, <laughs> went, uh, went off uh, to, to Norway last, uh, just last summer. And uh, another part of the market who opened up was uh, in, the, um, uh, in the Arabian Emirates uh, uh, Gulf area. And, uh, you know, if, if a captain of Irish ACME takes 5,000 per month, a first officer in the Gulf area takes uh, 15,000 per month. So the first officer in the Gulf area is paid three times more as a captain in Ireland. So obviously everybody who enters uh, ACME Irish uh, has in mind to leave the company in a couple of in five, six years, you know, in some time is in mind to leave the company. And uh, so the fake news is that they must messed up with uh, the vacation time is not is not real. Every every pilot that they have works about 85, 90 hours per month. So there is no way they don't have vacation time, they don't have vacation time left over, they have to be home because otherwise they're illegal. Um, these, uh, uh, that's the reason why other companies like people coming from Irish Acme so much, because they know they work their butt off 80 hours per, per month, 90 hours per month. <clears throat> and you know very well that 90 hours for a pilot, you have to multiply that by two and a half to get your real, your real duty time. 
So uh, is about uh, what about 200 hours, uh, 200 and something hours per per month. You know, like any other any other worker. And um, so the fake news is that they don't have, they mess up with the vacation time because uh, there is no vacation time left over. They're, they they do not have pilots who flow like uh, 40 hours and they for 10,000 euros they will fly another 40 hours. They simply don't have hours. They 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 want you to work uh, uh, very hard and uh, to use all your available time. The real news is that the pilot market opened up and everyone from Irish Acme who can go somewhere else uh, will go somewhere else. And uh, you know, I uh, I also sent my application to them and uh, they, they never called me. Uh, I began to be a pilot when I was older. I've been a novel architect for uh, a lot of my life, uh, till I was about 40. Uh, thanks God, uh, ships and airplanes have a very, very much in common. So for me, the transition from the boat industry to the airplane uh, industry was uh, relatively easy. However, uh, because of my age, uh, it's very difficult for me to find a job in an airline. Uh, because when I send my CV, you know, they will simply look at the birth date and uh, they will just throw it away. Uh, so um, if uh, uh, this, you know, this, this, uh, what's happening now, it can turn to some advantage maybe for older people like me, because maybe uh, the company you know, if you're young, you do five, uh, five, uh, six uh, years with them, and then you leave the company, and you go to uh, yeah, so somewhere else like the Gulf area, Australia, China, South Africa, Canada, uh, South America, uh, wherever they they pay you more, even from Ireland to Norway, as we said before. But uh, in uh, in my case, you know, I have a family, I have kids, I have a house with a mortgage, so. Um, I will not easily move around. I will probably stick with them, even if the conditions are not ideal. However, the condition in Irish Acme will be better than the one I have now as a flight instructor. Because as you guys have said many times, you know, the, the more you work in this pilot job and the less you're paid. You know, I, I fly from, from Monday to Friday, about fly five flights per day with a turnaround time between one flight and the other one of uh, half an hour, which I have to go off uh, the plane, debrief my student, uh, do all the paperwork, uh, brief the next student for the next flight and jump on the plane again and uh, you know, do one or two hours or less and then come down, 25 minutes turnaround time. It's, uh, I, I really have to work a lot. And um, Irish Acme for me will be a step up <laughs> in uh, in how much I work and how I'm paid. So, well, this is just to just to say something about the Irish Acme and about the market and about some rumors from the inside of uh, the students coming and telling us. Uh, guys, have a nice day and. Uh, Bye bye, a lot of tailwind during the cruise and just a little bit of headwind during the landing. Ciao, guys. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Dimitri, for that uh, great oh, it was feedback. Great. Very in depth. Um, yeah, quite an eye opener. Yeah, uh, we were listening, going, wow, um, you know, that's uh, it's pretty amazing. It's not a wonder that uh, many of the pilots there are, are uh, 
going over, moving over to Norwegian and some others. Um, yeah. Uh, and Mila was asking in the chat room whether uh, I know whether or not Dimitri has applied in the past six months because they have a new application system and are also calling in older people now. So I don't know. Dimitri, let us know. Dimitri sent this in relatively recently, the 5th of October, and it's only the 9th today, so just a few days ago. So hopefully he knows that. And uh, if uh, he, I don't know, maybe resubmitting his uh, application might uh, might be helpful for him. I don't know. Yeah, but by his own analysis, it's not the ideal place to go and work, but uh, uh, it's a case of needs must. If uh, yeah. if you need that first step up into the industry, then you just have to swallow all the bad stuff and uh, just get on with it until you have got enough experience to be able to move on to the airline that you really wanted to go and fly with. But I just find it a bit sad that they can't generate a, uh, a enough uh, good feeling amongst their pilots to make them want to stay and make it a career airline because that really is ideal. If you've uh, devoted a lot of time and effort to training your pilots, uh, to make them uh, loyal to your company and keep them for years is really the ideal way. That's the way you build up a backbone of, uh, of experience. And uh, just cycling pilots through uh, means you have to have a very large training system, which is pretty expensive, uh, and it's much nicer to be able to uh, keep the pilots and uh, keep them on board. Now, from what I understand, uh, both Ryanair and EasyJet, uh, the, the folks that started those airlines, they went to the United States to ch- kind of check out this new carrier several, several years ago, uh, Southwest oh, yeah, Airlines, yeah. and they, they both modeled a lot of the way the airline operates on Southwest. And you know what? Here in the U.S., Southwest Airlines is one of the highest, has a, some of the highest pay rates of yeah. any of our airlines. Yeah, I've heard very good things about yeah. Southwest from a so uh, pilot's that, point of view. Why is it that that works here and doesn't seem to work over there? I think it's all down to the, uh, you know, the bottom end. They decided that... Uh, there was a huge pilot pool that they could draw on and they didn't need to waste money uh, giving pilots good conditions of service and looking after them and making them happy in their employment. And they thought they could uh, make a bigger profit out of just giving the guys the bare minimum. So would the uh, saying penny wise and pound foolish? Absolutely. I think, yeah, whatever that means, I haven't a clue. <laughs> <laughs> well, look it up. Wikipedia. <laughs> All right. Uh, so thank you again, Dimitri, for yeah, sending us in was, that uh, feedback. It was good in-depth stuff. Uh, much appreciated. And uh, speaking of audio feedback, we have some more audio feedback. This one from Lake Norman Mark, uh, just in the, uh, in the Charlotte area, just north of uh, downtown Lake Norman. Beautiful place. He says, uh, hello, Jeff, and distinguished APG crew. I guess I'm not distinguished. Um, <laughs> Recently attended the pancake breakfast, pancake breakfast fly in at Kilo India Papa Juliet, Lincoln County Regional Airport, just north of Charlotte. I brought the Zoom recorder with me in hopes of getting an interview or two. The people that arrange these get togethers are dedicated, amazing folks. They have to get to the airport very early, mix the batter, cook the sausage and hash browns, brew copious amounts of coffee set and reset the tables and clean it up all up afterwards. There were over 100 pilots, pedestrians and passers-by that were all welcomed in for free breakfast and a walk amongst the airplanes on the ramp. 
I did a few twists around the pattern in the trusty old 172L before I tied it down and set up the mics. The things I found out on my maiden attempt on recording uh, to do this were, number one, my interviewing skills suck and need some serious improvement. <laughs> uh, don't be so hard on yourself, Mark. Um, number two, pilots pretend to be shy when they see a microphone. But then they don't stop talking. <laughs> we, can, we can verify that. Yep. And number three, pilots will fly great distances for free pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> you are. I mean, it's got to be cheaper than a $100 hamburger. Isn't it? Uh, maybe, just barely. I apologize that the interview is a bit long and there are a few mysterious beeps in the beginning. But Brian, my interview victim, is an interesting person. Uh, an interesting person, airline captain and steerman pilot. He was there giving biplane rides to lucky kids. Oh, wow. Doesn't that go back to the 1920s and 30s with the barnstormers and the guys back from the First World War? Yeah. Giving people from the countryside their first chance of flying? Oh, yeah. Brilliant. So he says, I hope you enjoy it. If so, I'll polish up my skills to do some more. Blue skies and tailwinds, your humble fan, Lake Norman Mark. So you want to hear... His work? No, no, I don't. Okay, let's skip it. Because he, he kind of, you, Mark, you scared us away. We don't yeah, even want to yeah, listen to exactly it. Yeah, exactly right. No. no, let's take a listen. See, see if we can hear some good stuff. Okay, so I am here interviewing people at the Pancake Breakfast. Not just people, but pilots here at the Pancake Breast Breakfast at the Lincoln County Regional Airport, KIPJ, for those of you that are keeping score. And I have the pleasure of being with Brian Rosenstein, who I saw fly in on an interesting aircraft. What yeah. is that aircraft that you flew in on, Brian? Uh, I have a 1943 Boeing Stearman. A 43 Boeing Stearman. Yep. So not the kind of thing you see every day here on the airfield. No, that is true. <laughs> that is true. And um, what got your interest in aviation going? Um, I was a kid in the late 80s. Uh, I was about 13 years old, living in Virginia. And my father found an ad in the newspaper for a place called the Flying Circus Air Show in Bealton, Virginia. It's about an hour south of Washington, D.C., and he took me to the show, and uh, I wasn't even to the airport yet, and I was in love. I just saw a, a big yellow biplane slip in over the treetops, and I knew that's exactly what I wanted to do. I was too scared to go by myself for an airplane ride, so the two of us took a, a $40 ride in a Waco UPF-7, which is very similar to the Stearman. Mm -hmm. Seats two in the front, as opposed to the Stearman, which only seats one. So from that moment on, I was hooked. I... Uh, mowed lawns, cleaned houses every week to have enough money to go back to that show every Sunday. Uh, it's a barnstorming type show. I think this is the 46th year now. Uh, every Sunday, May through October, that show goes uh, on this big grass strip. So I cleaned houses and mowed lawns. And every Sunday, my dad drove me back there and I would spend $25 for a standard 15 minute flight in a steerman. And uh, until they were so sick of me, they hired me on the ground crew to sweep out hangers and take the trash out. And uh, from there, I just grew. I started taking lessons with some some guys there. And, in what aircraft? In a Stearman. In yeah, a Stearman. At that point, so, I was 14. I just turned 14, and I started taking lessons in the Stearman. Wow. 15 minutes at a time, you know. So now I've heard from retired 
military pilots from World War II that actually learned to fly in the steam, and they went from that to more advanced trainers. Right. And they said they had wished they'd done it the other way around because <laughs> the steerman was more difficult to fly. It is a challenge. It is a challenge. As a matter of fact, my first flight instructor was uh, a retired United captain who was also a B-29 pilot in World War II. So uh, he is and still is uh, my first influence in, in aviation. So, yeah, and the steerman's a challenge. It's, uh, it's a tricky airplane. I'll bet, because it's a lot of airplane, you know, <laughs> so I'm sure that it's like a bond door catching the wings in the side there. You've got to have plenty of, uh, plenty of fancy footwork keeping it, uh, keeping it on the runway, especially That's when you're taxiing and landing. Especially on the pavement. Yeah. On yeah. grass, it's a pussycat, but on, oh. pa- on pavement, it's, it's a handful. So has it always been the steerman for you, or have you flown other things? Well, I've flown many, many airplanes, but uh, the steerman is the one that stole my heart. Uh, A good friend of mine has the saying, you know, if you ask me what my favorite airplane is, I'll tell you it's the airplane I happen to be flying at that moment, which is very true for me. Um, Everything from Cubs and Champs and Stearmans and Wacos and T6s and all those types of fun airplanes. Uh, But the Stearman just has a special presence about it, uh, a special feel to it. Even just sitting in the hangar on a rainy day, there's just something about being around it that is uh, uh, kind of romantic in a way and, right. and uh, alluring. It's habit forming. Yeah, I'll bet. You know, the, the, the big biplane, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, 60 years old, so 70 years old now, right? Yes. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is, I mean it's, it's an amazing presence on the ramp. As soon as it's on the ramp, of course, or as soon as anybody hears you on the radio, I mean, the first thing they did was gather around to, to see <laughs> it. It, it does attract it a lot of attention. Yeah. Right. It, the, you know, you need crowd control when the steam is, is, is coming into the airport, for That's right. sure. And it looks great on the airport next to all these GA aircraft, which right? are, you know. Yep. Which are, you know, kind of garden variety compared to a steer. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It's, uh, they all have their place, and I enjoy each one of them. I was a flight instructor for many years before I got hired by the airlines. But it, so I've flown them all, and they're all uh, great platforms, but the Stearman is. So. so let's go back to that. So now you started taking lessons in the Stearman, and where did it go from there? Um, I, I got my private uh, when I was I sold it at 16. And then in the Stearman. In the Cessna 172 and, okay. and the Stearman. Okay. And, um, and then at 17, I got my private. Uh, and I started flying little acts in, the, in that Flying Circus Air Show. They do like a, a mailbag pickup with a cub, you know, or a little flower bomb drop. And, you know, they, as people got to know me and trust me and I, I earned their trust, I'd fly little acts here and there. Uh, and then at age of 18, I got my commercial rating. And a friend of mine at that air show said, you want to fly rides in my Piper Cub? So I said, absolutely. So we'd fly the littler kids that can't fit quite in the big steerman. Uh, the littler kids, you know, four, five, six-year-olds. Right. So I did that for about half a summer until another gentleman said, you need to be flying rides in a steerman. So I was 18 years old, and he uh, had me ride with a couple of uh, pilots there just to make sure I was... Uh, they were comfortable with my skill level, and I started flying rides in the Stearman at the age of 18 uh, at the Flying Circus. So, Well, and uh, what year was that? That would have been, I, I was told there'd be no math. Uh, <laughs> that would have we been 90, that, we don't mean it. Uh, the summer of 1995. Summer of 1995, wow. Yeah. So, um, and so, so after you got your commercial ticket and your yep. CFI, obviously. Instrument, multi-engine, all of that. And so you, did you spend any time actually teaching? 
Oh, yes. Yeah. Up uh, in Virginia at the Warrington Falkir Airport. Uh, and then I worked for about a year and a half up in Gaithersburg, Maryland, uh, teaching at that flight school. This was all pre-9-11, so right. the airspace was a lot simpler than it is now. But, uh, yeah, I, I taught at both of those airports. And uh, at Warrington, I was the only instructor there that was tailwheel qualified. So I ended up getting a lot of the tailwheel students, aerobatic students, unusual attitude students that, that nobody else could teach. Um, and it was a, the time of my life, but I, I knew that the airlines is where I wanted to be, and I just wasn't getting the multi-engine experience I wanted, so I moved up to Gaithersburg, taught there for about a year and a half, and then at the age of 22, I got hired at what was then called Continental Express, uh, which was a part of Continental Airlines. So you were flying right seat in what aircraft? Uh, I started out in the right seat of the Brasilia, the EME uh-huh. 120, and then shortly thereafter, uh, moved to the left seat at... Uh, the age of 24, I was a captain on the Brasilia, and based in Houston and Cleveland, we kind of moved around a little bit. And then uh, 9/11 uh, came. I was a captain on the Brasilia until that airplane went away in 2002, and then I transitioned over to the Embraer 145, which is uh, the regional jet, and a lot of people are familiar with. And uh, I went to the right seat of that uh, just to get familiar with it for about six months, six to nine months, and then um, upgraded to captain on that, and that's where I've been ever since. Wow. And so what kind of uh, routes are you flying now? Anything interesting or? Uh, that seems to be the standard question that <laughs> when someone finds out you fly for the airlines, it's different every week. Uh, we bid on our schedules and seniority order. And then, uh, you know, one week I could be in Canada and next week going through Mexico, uh, mostly domestic. Um, every week the, the, the destinations are different, which is nice. It keeps it fresh. Where are you based out of? Newark, New Jersey. Yeah. So you commute uh, from here Charlotte. in Charlotte, North Carolina, up to New Jersey. That's right. Jump seat to and from uh, uh, Newark twice a week to get home, to and from work and, uh, and enjoy my time in the Stearman on my days off. So when did you get that Stearman? When did you become the proud owner I, of a 1946 Stearman? Uh, 43, yeah. 43 I, I brought Stearman. the airplane down um, in March. I bought it over the winter. Uh, from a friend of mine that we've partnered for years doing ride business out in Galesburg, Illinois. Every year there's a national steerman flying out there. I met him when we uh, were out there and we've uh, split the ride business up. Me and a couple of different folks sell rides out there, uh, which I actually just got back from last week. Um, and then he decided he wanted to move up to something bigger with a, uh, another steerman, but with a 450 horsepower Pratt Whitney engine on it, which is twice the horsepower. So he asked if I'd buy him buy his him out of his airplane and i said absolutely and uh so i brought it down over the uh over early spring when uh, the weather was warm enough because it's open cockpit so it's, sure. it's quite cold and uh i have it keep it over at uh, concord regional right now cool i mean it's, it's such a cool airplane i can imagine what it must have been like you know flying your own steam <laughs> for the first time well, yeah it's um a little surreal, and uh, it, but it's a lot of fun. The airplane is one of the, the airplanes I've, of the many that I've flown with just so much personality. It talks to you through the controls, through the wires and the struts and the wings, mm-hmm. the, the sound of the wind, the feel of you know what the controls are doing. It really gives you a lot of feedback. So it's, uh, it's not like you get in a steerman and you fly it. You, you know, you are become kind of part of the airplane. You communicate with each other. It's really a, a very interesting and special experience. 
So you have any interesting experiences that you'd like to uh, share with whoever might be listening? Uh, um, every time I land a Stearman on pavement, it's an interesting experience. <laughs> uh, um, no, I mean, I, 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 uh, I try to do things very conservatively. I, I'm not one of these guys who's going to buzz your, in your hangar and, and uh, uh, you know, I'll do a nice low pass down the runway, but I don't yank and bank over the airport. And, you know, I, I just try to be respectful of people in the pattern and people at the airport who may not really care to see you know, people <laughs> fly like that. So I try to fly conservatively and respectfully of everybody else. And I, you know, I try not to do too much uh, uh, in the way of, of surprising people. Uh, I do sell aerobatic rides. So I'll go out and, and with some altitude and, and uh, give folks the loops and the rolls and the spins and all of those maneuvers that they may see in an air show. But uh, thankfully, knock on wood, not too many scarier <laughs> Terribly interesting experiences. Right. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's a good thing. So now I saw today that you took uh, two young sisters, I think yes. they were. So one at a time, of course, yes. you took them. Yeah. And uh, how was their experience riding up in your airplane today? Uh, a lot of the younger kids, uh, one was 15 and one was 11. Um, and they were nervous, which is normal. Uh, but once they realize, you know, the airplane looks at first glance, it's covered with fabric and it's got these wires and struts and it, it looks a little questionable, you know, for people who aren't into, into aviation. Um, but once you get in the airplane and you just feel how robust and how stout the airplane feels mm -hmm. uh, and how really how overbuilt and strong it is, there's a sense of comfort that comes with that. And even in light turbulence, the airplane is just so stable that it really relaxes people. And those kids had a great time. They, where did, did you take them out over the lake? Yeah, uh, over Lake Norman uh, to take a look. There's about 50 or 60 sailboats out on the lake today, so we, which was kind of nice to see. So I uh, took them out over the lake and uh, went and found their house uh, up in north of Denver, uh, North Carolina. So we were able to find their house and circle over their house, uh, circle over my son's baseball practice. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, you know, so I get down on the ground. I've got six or seven of my friends texting me. We saw you fly over in the pipeline. Oh, cool. <laughs> so That's cool. Good time. So if you had any advice for a youngster trying to perhaps take the path that you took to the airlines, what kind of uh, tips would you have for someone who was just starting out? Um, really, Aviation and, and flying is really a lifestyle as opposed to a career path. Um, it, it's a learning a brand new language. It's a language you have to become fluent in. And the only way to become fluent in it is to sub, submerge yourself in it. Uh, I, I submerged myself in aviation from the age of 13 to the point where, um, you know, I didn't do sports in high school. You know, I, I was in the Civil Air Patrol, which was helpful. Uh, but just to get yourself to an airport, go to an airport stand on the other side of the fence like I did and eventually the more you do that the more opportunities will open up you get to meet people aviation is an incredibly small community uh, and you'll start to meet people eventually someone's going to say hey I'm going around the pattern would you like to go and when those opportunities start to pop up it just it there's the sky's literally the limit I mean it it just will open up for you you know always be there you know opportunity you know there's no such thing as luck there's there's planning and opportunity you know so Excellent pre advice. preparation and opportunity so i did that i just went to the airport and continued to go to the airport every weekend i'd be at the airport just get to know somebody hey can i help you clean your airplane can i help you push your airplane into the hangar uh do you need any help 
you know, can I, you know, can I watch you change your oil? You know, whatever the situation is, eventually you're going to get to know people. And as you get to know them and they get to know you, opportunities will arise and fly anything and everything you can that's airworthy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, it will, it will come together. You'll see it, it, it will come together. Well, I think that's uh, excellent advice. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time yeah, to, to tell your story here. Uh, it seems that, I mean, the people around here, the, the pilot population around here and everywhere seems to be extremely friendly. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a wonderful community. It's a great thing to be a part of. Yep. Everybody does look to help you and, and get you going and, and really make sure that you have success. So it's, it's just wonderful to be around. There's a guy here today who uh, his son just went up for a second lesson in the Tobago uh, mm-hmm. TB10. And uh, he was like, that's all my kid wants to do. And I was like, <laughs> right on. Yeah. My son isn't, isn't necessarily as jazzed about it as I am. But, you know, when, when I started flying with him, he's 13 now, and I started flying with him at about the age of eight. Um, you know, I kept the logbook for him just to... If, for sentimental reasons and when i look back at my son's logbook now it's steerman 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 waco cub steerman steerman cub waco cub champ champ steerman steer so to him this isn't special it's it's not Mm -hmm. unique you know to him this is what an airplane is uh which you know maybe he is (laughs) uh it's a matter of perspective you know someone like you or other people who don't see steermans very often they come out on the ramp and wow look at that but to my son, oh, it's a steerman, you know, because to him, he doesn't know any different. <laughs> so. Right. I mean, there, there's always certain airplanes that are always going to garner interest, no matter, oh, yeah. no matter how much it like uh, the, guy, the gentleman that uh, landed it on a, a cub on floats. Right. I mean, a cub on floats is always going to. Absolutely. It's always going to gather a bit of, bit of a crowd, some questions, you know. The, as well it should. The pilot's going to have to sign autographs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I appreciate it. I know you got to run. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you and continued success with your flying career. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. That's it. Uh, thank you, Lake Mor- Norman Mark, for that. Uh, yeah, a little long, but uh, it was an interesting story. Uh, uh, yeah. And it's always nice to hear about guys who are giving up time to uh, bring others into the aviation community. It's such a wonderful thing to be able to do. Yeah. And uh, apparently uh, the chat room is... Uh, Shifted to uh, from plane talk to train talk. Yeah, I think they thought we were going a bit fast for them. <laughs> okay. Well, that's understandable. Um, this is an interesting one. I'm not sure if you read a little bit or heard about this story. Again, Liz. Yeah, I did read it. Sent in this article about a Canadian uh, Air Canada Boeing 787-9 Dreamliner near Hyderabad. Did I say that? Hyderabad. Hyderabad. On September 19th, 2017, air traffic control tries to divert the aircraft despite several Mayday calls following two diversions. And uh, let's see, they were flying from Toronto to Mumbai and were on approach to Mumbai being cleared for the approach. ATC canceled the approach clearance due to a runway excursion by another aircraft. And then I guess it says, see the incident, SpiceJet Boeing 737-800 at Mumbai. I, did, I do remember reading about that one as well. Uh, overran the runway on landing. The aircraft, the uh, Air Canada Boeing 787, initiated a missed approach 
entered a hold at flight level 7,000 or, or 70, uh, 7,000 feet, then 8,000 feet, then 10,000 feet. About an hour uh, after that, the crew decided to divert to their planned alternate airport and set course. However, shortly afterwards, ATC told the crew that the alternate was unable to accommodate them due to being at maximum capacity. The crew consulted with their dispatch, decided to divert to Hyderabad. Um, the aircraft climbed to flight level 250, was en route to Hyderabad, when ATC told them that Hyderabad also was unable, unable to accommodate them due to being at maximum, maximum capacity. The flight crew declared May Day due to being low on fuel. However, ATC instructed them to enter a hold and tried to divert them several times before giving them a direct route to Hyderabad following the fourth May Day declaration. The aircraft landed on Hyderabad's runway 9 left 118 minutes, almost two hours, after aborting the initial approach into Mumbai. The Canadian TSB reported, quote, The operator reported that ATC continued trying to divert the flight and attempted to place it into another hold. The flight crew had to declare Mayday four times before ATC cleared them for the approach into Victor Oscar Hotel Sierra. The TSB is in contact with India's AAIB. Now, I'm not so sure that I'd have as much patience as this Air Canada crew had. They're they're Canadians, you know. They're They're so polite. Unbelievably polite, (laughs) yes. Uh, So, oh, that's right. If if you bump into them, then they apologize? Absolutely. Ah, I see. Okay. But, I mean, I'd be going like the, the first May Day, I'd be going, okay, I don't know... I don't know what you uh, have in mind for us, but this is what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, I have declared an emergency now. That means I'm in control of my airplane and what I'm going to do. And I'm going to, I'm letting you know right now, I'm descending to this altitude. I am landing at this airport. Yeah. And and I've, I think that's eventually what they um, had to yeah, do. Yeah, four times. Yeah. Oh, uh, wow. So unbelievably um, patient with air traffic. But uh, I just wonder what was going through the air traffic controllers' minds when they were trying to give them alternate plans, having heard them declare an emergency and give their intentions. Uh, and not just an emergency, Mayday is the highest level of emergency you can possibly declare. So the fact that they had declared a Mayday uh, and they're now on what was already their second choice of diversion, having held for an hour, geez, you know, you just do not have uh, infinite amounts of fuel and at some point you say, well, I don't care whether you park us on the end of the runway we land on. You're going to have to land us somewhere or we're going to end up in a field. Right. Yeah. I just, uh, that to me, what, you know, the, the air traffic, maybe that's something in their culture where maybe the pilots from their own country and their airlines like declare Mayday, like just haphazardly and they really don't mean it or, you know, almost like the boy who cried wolf. Well, is I, that possibly I, I something that enters into this equation? Having flown into India, uh, I have not heard that, but okay. I do know that their air traffickers can be um, really quite authoritarian, and uh, they will drive you around the place, and they well, they really won't listen to you when you try and offer an alternative or perhaps request something different. No, they have a plan in mind. And uh, if they hear that an airfield is at maximum capacity, I think that perhaps they go – Right, well, that's it. We can't use that airfield. Got to go somewhere else without realizing that 
an airfield that is at maximum capacity might just mean that all the parking positions are taken. There are still going to be spare taxiways you can park airliners on. And once someone declares a mayday, you go, well, all those normal rules about when an airport is not available are now out of the window. If you've got a piece of tarmac that I can put it down on, then give it to me. So that, uh, that kind of, you know, the catering and the gates availability and all that kind of stuff for me is not an ATC function. That's a, my company dispatcher, mm-hmm. that kind of conversation happens with our company level of communication, not the communication with the people that are controlling my flight. They should, as you said, be concerned with, is there a runway that they can land on and pull off and not, you know, block the runway for other people to use yeah. it. Yeah. And you know, and not whether or not they have the catering and the air stairs or the jetways or whatever is necessary to accommodate passengers. So yeah. you're right. I uh, mean, th- there are other countries where uh, our airline has had problems similar to this, not quite the same. Uh, and one of those would possibly be Japan, where um, an unexpected diversion has created all sorts of problems and Guys who are on minimum fuel and requesting direct routings, not getting them, being pushed around. And, and often that's a problem of language. Uh, but eventually when the crew has been forced to declare Mayday, that has actually broken through all the rigmarole and they've managed to get what they were after. But it has taken considerable sometimes amount of persuasion. And this, I think, is when the captain needs to have a good grasp of the English language and uh, make it absolutely clear that there are no alternatives now. He needs to do uh, what he is planning because he is ultimately the authority and responsible for the safety of the aircraft. And when he makes a final decision, that's it. You can't really uh, go against that. Very well said. All right. Thank you, uh, Liz, for uh, sending in uh, that story. Um, Okay. So here's (laughs) what you have all been waiting for. We, uh, uh, well, one of the things you've all been waiting for. You know what? No, I'm going to tease it. I'm going to wait to uh, cover the uh, Airbus A380 interesting crosswind landing video. And first, make sure that we play this week's installment of Plane Tales. And this is part two of your interview with Ian Black. Oh, yeah. The old pilot's plane tales. The Ian Black Interviews Part 2, where we hear about Ian's work as a publisher and photographer. Whose idea was it to publish your first book, and um, how does it compare with your latest creations? Well, I, uh, I met a chap called Dennis Baldry, who worked for Osprey Publishing in Longacre in London, and they were starting a, uh, a series of colour series books called um, just the Osprey Colour Series books, I guess, and, and they were fast jets and jet combat and a guy from Bimbrook had done one and so I I had amassed a reasonable collection of photographs and then I got a commission to do the book and I think at the time it was maybe £2,000 to do the book the commission which was you know a reasonable amount of money it was enough to buy yourself a decent camera and enough film to produce a book so it it wasn't uh, an insignificant amount of money and then from that um, I published maybe seven or eight more books whilst I was in the Air Force uh, always with the um, the hope that one day I could publish my own book because publishers tend to treat it a bit like yesterday's fish and chips. You know, you've you've got a book coming out, 
they produce it and then the next day they've got somebody else's book coming out so they then want to move on to that and so I wanted to do a book which had uh, in terms of uh, photography moving up a gear I guess into making sure that all the photographs didn't go down the middle of the book all the photographs were nice and clear and across the center spread no out of focus pictures no marks on them and no mistakes so I decided to publish my own books and it was actually a pretty pretty simple process of finding a printer finding a designer and then doing a lot of the preparation work myself interesting um the quality of your first books compared with the ones you do now um a lot of difference um no, I don't think there is really. I mean, they used to ship out a lot of the printing to Singapore and the Far East. And, of course, in those days, everybody shot on roll film and Kodachrome. Nowadays, everyone shoots on digital cameras. So, you know, if you compare what people can do now with what they could do then, I personally think that Kodachrome is unequal. You, you can't beat that sort of depth of saturation and it, almost as if they're 3D. The images sort of have a life to them on their own. I've yet to see uh, many uh, digital photographs that I look at and go, wow, that's amazing. The first thing that comes into my head is that I look at that photograph and go, wow, he's good at Photoshop. I remember a Frenchman talking to me about um, Cote de Rhone wine. And he said to me that, you know, putting wine into oak barrels is like putting makeup on it. And it's just not, it's not the same. And that to me is digital photography. It's, it's all very good and it's great, but it doesn't have that arty quality depth to me that Kodachrome used to have you think it's adding more to the picture than was really there yeah I mean I, I just uh, while you're talking to me about um, books I've got a new book coming out in uh, a couple of months time and I, you know trying to get 150 images all done is very time consuming and I sent one image off to um, a guy up in Scotland who's a who's an expert at uh, digital manipulation as it were and he sent it back to me. He said, yeah, I've, um, I've tweaked some of the colours and it's got some real punch to it. And I took a bit of the cockpit out for you. I thought, yeah, but that's, you know, that was part of the image. It was to show people. And one of the greatest compliments I've ever had is that somebody said to me that the thing they liked about my photography was that it always gave people the impression that they were sat with me in the cockpit. So, and that's what I tried to do. I, I tried to make my images that somebody could be sitting, looking at the book as if they were sat with me in the cockpit so I might include a bit of the, the canopy frame or I might include uh, the head-up display because that's what I'm seeing. And I, being very critical, when I look at photographers who do, say, they get a photo shoot with the Red Arrows or they get a photo shoot with the F-35 or the Typhoon, they always go for, you know, middle of the day, sunny picture, um, two aircraft breaking away or banking towards each other, and it's all canned. And I suppose I've been very fortunate. And I'm lucky that, you know, I could fly three trips in a tornado um, in the middle of October. And I'd go, well, I'll take two shots in the morning. There's a nice bit of light. And I'll wait till the evening. There's a nice sort of dusk evening light. And I'll take some shots with a bit of burner in in the evening. And I didn't have to wait for that one shot. So what were some of the most difficult photographic situations you've had to deal with? I guess it's always the ones where you get where you get a commission to take a photograph. Uh, I've had you know quite a few commissions where I've been asked to take photographs. Um, in particular, I got asked to take um, some shots for Breitling um, Aerospace, 
uh, of a chap who was going to be doing some wing walking off a steerman. And, you know, that required um, me getting the, the aircraft and this Chinese gentleman on top of a steerman doing some wing walking shots with a famous English country house in the background. So that that was, you know, they all ha all the ducks had to be lined up there and the weather had to be perfect. And again, I've done some PR shots of Virgin Atlantic, you know, and if you get a Boeing 747 in the middle of the North Sea and you're flying in a, an L-39 or something, it's not an inexpensive uh, project you're doing there. And if you mess it up, you know, there's not a second chance. Um, I, ha I had to do a shoot... Um, for a famous RAF officer, Air Marshal Sir Patrick Hine, he was leaving the Air Force, and they'd arranged a photo shoot with a Harrier leading, two uh, Hawker Hunters, two McDonnell Douglas Phantoms, and a Lightning from uh, British Aerospace, and they were going. It was going to fly once over High Wycombe over the headquarters, but the weather was appallingly bad. Um, we eventually got all the the six or so aircraft to form up in formation, and we had to get a shot. And even though it's sort of 4K vis and a thousand foot cloud base, I still had to produce the goods. I couldn't say, well, I'm really sorry, but the weather's bad and the, all the pictures are blurred. So, you know, you've just got to, I guess it's experience. You know that whatever the weather, whatever the, the time of day, you've got to produce the goods. That must be real tough. Anywhere photography has unique challenges. What are some of the technical problems you have to deal with? The biggest thing really is um, the weight of the camera. Uh, that can be, you know, a kilogram, which under 6G becomes 6 kilograms. Uh, glare is a is a big uh, problem. You know, if you have a canopy that's half an inch thick of perspex, you can get a lot of glare inside it. No-nos are using a polarizing filter in the air because that then picks up all the, the greens and blues of the perspex. Um, I, I don't do many photographs uh, air-to-air of things like Spitfires and Hurricanes, and that requires a slow shutter speed to, to blur the prop. Otherwise, you end up with a, a frozen prop, and it looks like the engine's failed. So that's a, a difficult thing. Same with helicopters. Um, also, a thorough briefing is a really important thing because you know often um, there's a massive ego uh, comes up when you fly with particularly fighter pilots, and you're going to do an air-to-air -air photo sortie, and you want to take a picture of a guy coming next to you and he's going to do a knife edge, or you want to pull into the vertical and you want him to get a roll towards you, he's always going to try and, and go that little bit further and, and make his picture with him in his aeroplane the really the, the really coolest picture you've ever seen. So they always tend to, you know, egg the pudding, as they say, and it's very, very important to make sure that you say to them, look, just stick to the brief and don't do anything that I haven't briefed because it'll probably kill us both, or, or more than both of us. So yeah, briefing is the most important thing, I guess, and um, and, and the you know picking the best camera lens you, you can afford. So we've got lots of listeners who enjoy aviation photography. Um, what advice would you give some of them to improve their results? Um, I'd, I'd say keep plugging away. I mean, uh, it's actually uh, quite heartwarming to me that I you know through doing books myself as opposed to through publishers, I've met a couple of people, uh, a guy called Simon and a, guy, a girl called Joe, and they both started photography, maybe because of me, I don't know. And their, their, their work was um, mediocre at the beginning, but now they produce really exceptional photography. You know, and, uh, Simon works in, a, in an industrial area. He produces some really lovely black and white stuff. Joe's done air-to-air. -air. So you know, it's not a question of um, giving up if you don't think that you're, you're good enough, because... You, you will eventually, you'll get there in the end. 
Now, Ian, do you have one particular photo that you took and looked back on as an example of your best work? Yeah, I have several. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that actually, that, that was trying to be amusing and witty. But I do have um, maybe two photographs that uh, stand out above all the others for various reasons. One, uh, if I can um, ruin your question by having two answers. One was a, a, a photograph of a lightning firing a missile. And um, it's quite a long-winded explanation, but I was shooting on a large format camera with no motor drive. So literally, you know, you have one press of the shutter, you wind it on and you have another shot. I had 12 exposures. We were sat in Cardigan Bay and it was the sort of the typical beautiful, uh, I wouldn't say English summers, it, maybe it was actually February. So it was sort of big puffy clouds, lots of bright light, lots of dark sea, but we were shooting into sun. So we had a missile firing aircraft on our left. I was flying in a Hawk uh, from Valley. And as the guy um, got behind the flare to fire his missile, he called uh, what we would normally call the standard call and he'd go firing, he'd pause, he'd go firing, he'd pause, and he'd go now. And there'd be a slight pause, he'd squeeze the trigger. Now, as a fighter pilot, you know that when you squeeze the trigger, there's something like a 0.25 second delay and then the missile will come off the rail. So I had to shoot into sun with my large format camera and then anticipate that when he called firing, firing now, I'd pause for 0.25 of a second and then I'd squeeze the trigger and then I'd hopefully get the missile coming off the rail. Now looking into sun, he was banking at about 60 degrees of bank. He fired a missile from his right missile rail and I pressed the trigger and then I waited for what would seem like, whoa, two weeks. Because that's how long it took to get the film back. So I waited my two weeks. My large format film came back and I had two pretty average images. And then the one image when I pressed the trigger, the missile had just come off the rail. It was doing Mach 1.6 when it came off the rail. It was literally maybe four feet in front of the rail. It was right by the radar of the aircraft. The rocket motor had ignited, and that ignition on the rocket motor lit up the underneath of the aircraft. So I now had a shooting into sun picture with the image of the aircraft now lit up falsely by the rocket motor with all these big puffy white clouds behind it and then this huge great flame out the back of this red top. And it was perfectly pin sharp, and it was just that one image that I got off one roll of film. So that, to me, I guess is my, my image of my life. That's my Andy Warhol moment. Wow. Um, you've published, published a new book of photographs featuring one of my favourite fighters, the F-4 Phantom. So the photography, I've looked at it, it's stunning, Ian. But uh, um, you don't hold back any punches about the UK Phantom. Can you tell us a little about, about that? Well, I, I thought your favourite aeroplane was the F-3 Tornado, but I... <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Well, as um, as we've both grown older, I have uh, probably learned more about the F4 Phantom than I ever knew when I flew it, and uh, like you did. And um, when you're 21 or 22 and you're flying around a Phantom, you don't think much really about how it works or how it came to be. And I did a, a book for Haynes on the Haynes Manual series on the F4 Phantom about how the Phantom actually works. But part of the book involves... Um, the how did we buy the phantom and that's a book in itself but it just it was staggering beyond belief that we took an aeroplane which was the phantom the f4j 
that worked perfectly well. And we decided that we would anglicize it and put British engines in, British radar, British inertial systems in it. And we basically, excuse my French, we just buggered it up, really. And we took a perfectly good aircraft and made it 10 times as expensive and made it far less performant than it ever was before. And I uncovered a piece of um, paper in some sort of, it wasn't a classified magazine. I won't, I won't uh, try and lie to your readers and make it into some story it wasn't. But it was in the, the Flying Review of 1963. And it was Rolls-Royce. And they went to the US Navy and they said, look, we've got this engine, the Spey engine, which we're going to put re in. <clears throat> and you could actually fit that to the F4J Phantom. And then you could operate your F4Js off much smaller carriers. And so McDonnell Douglas said, yeah, that would be a really good idea. And maybe we could put them into all our F4Js and maybe the F4Bs. And Rolls-Royce are thinking, wow, this is going to be an order for like thousands and thousands of engines. And of course, what happened in the end was that the RAF bought their Phantoms and they put the Rolls-Royce engines. But the Navy said, do you know what? I think the J79 is just good enough as it is. So we'll stick with the J79. Thank you. So we got sold an aircraft that was, uh, you know, it wasn't as good as the F4J, that's for sure. It had its good points, but certainly um, when you look at the development of the F4K and the F4M, boy, did we do some messing around with what was a perfectly good bit of kit. Yeah, sad, isn't it? Um, now, finally, Ian, you've been lucky enough to fly uh, two remarkable airliners, the Airbus A340 and now the Boeing 787 Dreamliner. From uh, your perspective as a pilot, um, how do they compare? Well, I mean, I... Airline flying was never something that was going to be top of my list, but it has grown on me as I've uh, grown older. I, I did love the Airbus. I loved the Airbus 340. Um, the 340-300 was definitely underpowered. That that was um, for sure, even with four engines. The 340-600 was massively overpowered, and that was a lovely airplane to fly. Maybe uh, if I was being picky, the 340-600 was a little bit on the edge, I would say, of fly-by-wire technology in in the terms of you could get full backstick when you needed a little bit more sometimes. The A330, which I only flew for a year and a half, I actually, if I was still on the Airbus, I would probably love flying the A330 more than anything else. It was an aeroplane that I thought was the best blend between um, fly-by-wire and seat-of-the-pants flying. And only I, I only know that because... Having flown the 340-600 for 15 years or whatever it was, I flew a 330 into Antigua, I think, one day. And I took the autopilot out, took the autothrust out, and I just hand-flew it in there. And I could actually really get a feedback of adding a little bit of power and then going above the glide path, taking a bit of power off, and just almost like going back to flying a jet provost. It was actually, you know, if you wanted to make an Airbus fly, fly-by-wire and automatic, you could do if you wanted to take everything out and fly like a real airplane, you could do that as well. Excellent. How about the Dreamliner then? Well, uh, that's um, that's actually taken longer to get used to than the Airbus for various reasons. Uh, there's some bits of it which are brilliant. There are other bits which I think Boeing could really um, take a lesson or two out of Airbus. And strangely enough, you know, it's it's things like not having a side stick. That to me, you know, is very very. 1920s having a, a center yoke where you can't cross your legs you can't have a table just it's like flying a b17 other things which are really nitpicky i guess are the seat is not as comfortable as an airbus and that's really important when you're sitting there for 11 hours you need to have a comfortable seat and one which is not over complicated it's just somewhere where you're going to do your work um but having said that it's um it's an amazing 
aircraft in terms of performance, in terms of fuel burn. It sits at 0.86, which is um, doesn't seem much if you're flying an Air 4 Phantom, but actually when you're flying an airline and everyone else is going past at 0.82, all of a sudden you realize it makes, you know, it might only be 20 minutes, 30 minutes off a, off a journey, but if it's an 11 hour trip, 30 minutes is, is quite a big deal. For sure. Now, um, finally, uh, I wanted to thank you very much indeed for giving us your time. How can people find you, uh, particularly on social media? And more importantly, where can they find your publications and particularly your latest one? Well, uh, my books are done through uh, www.firestreakbooks.com, which is the same as the, the missile, Firestreak. Uh, I use um, Instagram to, uh, to humor my wife. And I'm mouse blankets on Instagram, but I had no idea why. I use Twitter occasionally, and uh, I should do more on Twitter. Or I'm on Facebook. If you look at Facebook, I've got a Fire Street Books page, and I try and keep that updated with a with a modern picture or a picture of a, a jet aircraft every couple of weeks or a couple of days or so. The the name of your latest book? The name of my book is going to be called Zinc. I've done uh, Lightning Volume One and Two. I've done an F4 Phantom book. Uh, zinc is a slang word the French use for jet or fighter. So it's going to be called Zinc in the days before stealth. So it's going to cover Lightnings, Phantoms, F-18s, F-16s, F-15s. Also, uh, when I flew the MiG-29, Su-27, F-104s, Mirage 2000 a lot, and uh, what else? Tornado F-3, Tornado GL-1, pretty much everything. So there'll be something for everybody there. Buccaneers, Jaguars, Harriers, everything. Can't wait to see it. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Cheers, Ian. Wow. Fascinating guy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the opportunities that Ian's had, that he's grasped with both hands uh, in his av aviation photography, let alone uh, the fact that he's had a brilliant flying career. Uh, sadly, he ha currently has to fly the Dreamliner. But, uh, <laughs> okay. I guess we all have our crosses to bear. <laughs> Just makes you appreciate the Airbus, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, I do, really do. Yeah, well, it was a fascinating uh, story about how he got that beautiful picture which we hope to uh have in the show notes so you can see that uh one that he described of the missile coming off the rail at 1.6 mach yeah very very cool all right uh let's see so now we've teased it enough many of you sent in feedback to us regarding this um interesting landing uh believe they were trying to land somewhere in germany right um don't recall exactly where um, uh, an Airbus A380 coming in to land. Ah, where is it? I should have looked at this before we started talking about it. Um, Dusseldorf, maybe. Um, I'm looking as fast as you are. I think it is. I think it is Dusseldorf. Uh, there's a part of it right here in the what Gustav uh, oh, yeah. sent. And um, let's see. So we have Gustav, Paul. Um, Jim, actually Jim's A380 landing, uh, video was from <laughs> Oshkosh. Oh, yeah, um, that's where the wings nearly hit the, <laughs> yes. they bent so much it on was the a, hard landing. A triple seven captain kind of, uh, gives his, uh, critique on this a Airbus A380 landing at Oshkosh. Uh, but, uh, so I, when I got the A380 landing video, I'm thinking, oh, this must, oh no, that's something entirely different. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. David also sent it in. And, uh, finally, I don't recall who this is. Um, my apologies, but anyway, there's this video of, uh, this, uh, I believe it's Emirates, isn't it? Um, coming yeah. in to land, uh, during a storm or, well, uh, it doesn't look, look like a storm. Bad. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just windy. Bit of a crosswind. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I, we don't know for sure because we couldn't see what was happening to the airplane when, you know, other than on the video. It's very. But my goodness gracious, I looked at this thing and, and literally gasped when. Now, of course, we have that that trick that um, uh, because you're using a long, a, a long focal length lens, you know, things look a little bit compressed. I forget yeah, exactly. Yeah, it shortens the, uh, yeah. the distance. It's so that, you know, part of that may be in play here because of the perspective that we're seeing this thing. But when you see this thing, this Airbus A380 land in a very, very big crab, and then you see when the when the wheels are trying to straighten out the uh, the fuselage to align it with the runway, it kind of goes, it straightens it out, but then it keeps on going way the other direction and then uh, as you pointed out nick you look at the uh, which is a huge surface this rudder yeah on this airplane um it's like that's like a what a four-story building yes or something like that <laughs> like moving and it is vast it's amazing and but you're looking at these inputs and i think both of us kind of looked at each other like wow that seems like it was uh, put in maybe a little bit too late and then held a little bit too long and then the airplane really almost appears to me to almost crash on that runway after it initially touched down. It was doing those oscillations, trying to get all straight. Well, he, out, he going down almost got himself into a PIO, a mm-hmm. pilot-induced oscillation. Uh, and because uh, he put in what he obviously thought was the right amount of rudder, but in reality, it turned out to be a very large input for the amount of uh, crab he needed to take out and then he held it in so at the point when the fuselage had aligned itself with the runway and he should now have the rudder back at neutral he still had this enormous input in so of course with an airplane with this amount of weight and the amount of inertia that you build up when you start yawing the nose around to bring it in line with the horizon you almost have to anticipate taking that rudder off again uh, because uh, the airplane's going to keep moving uh, even after you remove the control input because of that inertia. Uh, and he's actually got the input still there. So the the yaw uh, it just carries on until it's he's probably 10 or 15, perhaps even 20 degrees past where he should have come to a halt when he stopped the movement. And uh, so he's now skidding the wrong way down the runway, and the airplane is doing its best to keep straight. And, uh, of course, the wheels will straighten you up. Uh, the technique for the 340 uh, in a very strong crosswind is you only actually have to remove half the crab, and you can let the undercarriage do the rest um, because the undercarriage will naturally uh, align itself with the direction of the uh, aircraft uh, track. Um, so when you've got the wheels more or less straight, then you can take all the rudder input out and it'll probably stay. But he's got way too much. And then, of course, I don't know whether it was him or the other pilot, because I don't know who did the landing. But there's a huge rudder reversal then to try and stop this uh, movement, uh, which swings the aircraft horribly the other way. And then it took three or four oscillations before they managed to dampen it out. And I hate to think what the many passengers, particularly the ones at the very front and the very back, where they were getting... The this huge amount of sideways movement, wow. it must have been really uncomfortable for them. Oh my! I mean, it's so easy for us to <laughs> see a video like this and critique it and be the what we like to say in the U.S. Monday morning quarterback. Oh yeah, uh, I love this job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm glad it's not video of me, Land. But you know, you mentioned uh, coming into Atlanta um, yesterday and said that you purposely positioned the airplane 
slightly upwind of the center line to allow for the fact that you were going to, you know, have, you know, you need that little extra room uh, to do this maneuver as you get closer to the ground and allow, you know, you know, the airplane's going to do that straightening maneuver and everything else. I guess with a, an airplane this size, you almost can't do that, right? Because there's so much wing and engines out there in both directions. You can only do so much. It didn't appear to me that he actually, uh, he or she tried to um, land on one side or, or the other of the center line, but no, no. I mean, the trick is obviously to get the aircraft on the center line when you touch down. It looks like he's more or less achieved it. But mm-hmm. to do that, uh, our technique is to line up on the upwind side of the runway so that, because the moment you start taking that uh, crab wise drift off, the airplane is starting to be influenced by the crosswind and it'll start to drift. So if you've got a crosswind from the right, like we had landing yesterday, uh, I had the, uh, the aircraft crabbed to the right into wind. Now, the instant I start taking that crab out, the airplane's actually going to start drifting sideways. Now, if you uh, extend your flare slightly and you don't get the wheels on the ground nice and quickly, then the airplane can start to drift and continue to drift until eventually you will drift off the side of the runway. Because without that crabwise flow, it's now under the influence of the crosswind. Uh, and uh, so that's another important factor, which he did actually quite well. You don't mm-hmm. overflare when you're in a strong crosswind and try and make a really gentle landing. You try and make sure that as soon as you start kicking that crab drift off, you get the wheels on the ground so that the airplane doesn't disappear off the side of the runway which can happen and I've seen it happen. And then people then have to try and do a go around as they realize that they're going to run out of runway on the side mm-hmm. and they end up dragging the wheels through the, uh, the lights and the grass and it all becomes a bit of a nightmare. Now, many, uh, many hours in my logbook are logged on airplanes that do not have engine mounted. I mean, wing mounted engines. And in the case of the present airplane that I fly in the seven twenty seven, um, in, in addition, when I, straighten using rudder straighten the fuselage uh, i compensate for that for that drift with lowering the wing into the wind and that keeps us from you know moving sideways and allowing the wind but it's that's almost impossible to do with a wing or engine mounted on yeah. the wing yeah right? you can't really because, because there's you've, not not enough i mean no. you can only go to a certain amount of bank before no, you you've only got the uh, and i've in the normal case of things, you've only got a very few number of degrees uh, that you can legally uh, use. Mm-hmm. And if you exceed more than around seven degrees, you're going to bang a pod in. So yeah. you know, you've really got to keep the wings level. Uh, so the airplane will start to slide off sideways off the runway pretty quick. Um, and um, there was, oh, of course, uh, the other factor you've got to take into account is as you are yawing that nose round, you've got an advancing wing and a retreating wing. So in the case I was trying to describe with a crosswind from the right and you're crabbing to the right, you're going to yaw the airplane left to bring it in line with the runway. That means your right wing's an advancing wing. It's got slightly more forward speed than the left wing, which is a retreating wing. Now, that affects the amount of lift that those wings will produce, and the aircraft will start to roll. And the wing that is into wind, the advancing wing, will actually start to rise, and the downwind wing the retreating wing will start to drop. So not only do you have to kick off the rudder, in this case, uh, to the left, you have to put a bit of roll input to the right to tr- keep the wings level to, to counteract that roll. And, and, you, um, and you have to know that instinctively oh yeah. before you do it. It's not like you can't re... Well, I'm, I'm, sometimes this happens, but you shouldn't 
react to that rolling motion when you put in the rudder, you should just know that I know instinctively from my experience that as soon as I start aligning the fuselage with the runway, that it that right wing, in your case, is going to roll up and I'm going to have to compensate with a little bit of bank to keep that from happening. Yeah, because by the time you start to feel that roll, it's usually too late to yeah. get the control input in. Then you get in that PIO, as you mentioned, in, in that exactly. respect, and that axis. Now, Nev's asked a question, because he's obviously watched this movie, and you'll see that the rudder on this aircraft is uh, split. So there's an upper portion and a lower portion, uh, and uh, you see that uh, the two different halves of the rudder move at two different deflections, uh, and he's asking why. Well, this is really because it's such a tall device and with such a large control surface on it, um, you don't really want to have a lot of bending moment at the top of the fin. Uh, the fin is actually a relatively uh, um, vulnerable piece of equipment. You can't stand a lot of sideways movements on it. It's not really designed for that. Uh, and we know of aircraft that have had appalling accidents when the fins have departed uh, the aircraft. So um, in order to get a nice, uh, powerful movement, the lower half of the rudder can deflect a long way because that's near the join of the fuselage. The upper part deflects less so that there's less uh, twisting and less torsion on the fin and thereby you don't exceed the structural strength of uh, the you know the, the the fin and there's some other advantages of having a split tail rudder or a split rudder in that usually they're powered by separate hydraulic sources or actually usually they're powered by some common um, hydraulic uh, pumps and systems but they, if let's say you lose one of your major hydraulic systems that, that powers the rudder, you could possibly lose one half of that rudder, but still have the other, the part of the split rudder available to you. So it's kind of a safety margin. Yeah, it, it's thing. a backup system. Yeah. yeah, very much so. So, yeah. And, and, uh, as you mentioned, the way, the way it's activating is due to keeping the, uh, the, the bending, uh, torsion forces on the, on the, the vertical fin. And, uh, yeah, cool yeah. stuff. But it, it is, and I feel sorry because, uh, I don't know whether this was a relatively inexperienced pilot getting a chance to do a landing, um, or just slight mishandling. But, uh, of course these guys do fly ultra long haul and they don't get very many opportunities to practice, particularly in, in bad weather. Because quite honestly, it doesn't come around that often. So you do have to feel a little bit. It's not like mm -hmm. this guy will probably have done dozens upon dozens of crosswind landings. It's maybe, you know, one of very few he does in an entire year. Now, some people would say, well, why not just uh, leave it hooked up and let it auto land? I will, because you can't. The <laughs> auto land limit, crosswind limit, is relatively small, only 15 knots. So right. this is when our skills as a pilot actually have to be employed. There's no alternative. Right. And, and people who say, well, the airplane does it all itself. Well, on a benign day, yes, it mm -hmm. could. But when the weather is bad, this is really when the pilots uh, have to you know, earn their dollar. And usually when we're doing an auto land, uh, it's in a situation where the visibility is down to almost nothing. And in those cases, the meteorological conditions would be very stable air. So you're not gonna, usually you're not going to have a very large crosswind to contend with. And uh, so that's why, yeah. When you have a situation like this one, watch the video. You'll be <laughs> amazed. Uh, you, you're, there's no way you could possibly uh, task the 
autoflight system to uh, to do the landing all the way to touchdown. All right, very good. Um, Nick C sent us some audio. We had a lot of audio feedback this show. Let's uh, let's hear what Nick C has to say. Greetings, Captain Jeff, Doctor Steph, First Officer, soon to be El Capitan himself, Dana, and Captain Nick, former ramp pilot Nick here. I say former because the first time I met Captain Jeff was at the Columbus, Ohio meetup about two months ago. At the time, I introduced myself in the audio feedback as being a ramp agent for a directionally based airline headquartered in Dallas, Texas, that only flies the 737. Pretty difficult to figure out who that might be. Anyways, like I said, I've moved on uh, to my first ever flying job. I mentioned to you at the meetup, Captain Jeff, that I applied for and was fortunate enough to be selected for Air Force undergraduate pilot training with my local Air National Guard unit, and I should be attending training hopefully this time next year, learning to fly the KC-135. In the meantime, I decided to go out on a bit of a limb, if you will, and start my first flying job. So now, instead of being a ramp agent, I work as a pilot for an aerial survey company. In just the week that I've been there, I've already doubled my total multi-engine time which sounds really great until you realize I got hired with only 8 hours of multi-time. But hey, 20 hours is 20 hours of multi-time. Anyways, I've just been trying to soak in all the new information. The job itself involves quite a bit of en-route flying, which can be somewhat monotonous in a twin-engine Cessna or Aero Commander, so I've taken the opportunity to get caught up on old episodes of APG. I started listening in October of 2015, and since then, I've kept up to date with all current episodes, while also working my way back in the archives, starting with APG-001. Guess I've got the syndrome. This new job has definitely given me the opportunity to listen to some more of the early episodes while en route. Anyways, not wanting to take up too much of the podcast's time, I had a quick question or two about the Autoland system in the aircraft that you fly. I understand the general premise, but I'm curious as to how the auto throttles work during the flare, and how the flare itself is carried out. During an auto land, do you manually have to manipulate the thrust, or does the autopilot do that automatically? Specifically, just prior to touchdown, how is thrust managed? I guess what I'm asking is, is the aircraft smart enough to reduce power and flare itself, or is power left in and the aircraft essentially flown into the ground, if you will? Do you manually have to reduce thrust during the flare or after touchdown? Hopefully this question makes sense. And I'm looking forward to hearing how the systems differ in your aircraft, with the Airbus being highly automated in relation to the Mad Dog. And I suppose Dr. Steph has it easiest when it comes to auto land. Just pull the chute in the Cirrus. Anyways, take care, and I'm sure I'll be sending some more audio feedback as my schedule allows. All right. Uh, great feedback, and congrats, uh, congratulations, Nick C., uh, flying for that directionally oriented airline. Yeah, we're and, all wondering uh, about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, mm, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's uh, cool that you're flying with a survey company and uh, also very cool that you're going to be uh, affiliated with that reserve unit and uh, getting that uh, great military pilot training. Uh, sounds like the best of both worlds, so that's that's pretty cool. So your question in regards to the, the way uh, an airplane uh, manages thrust during an auto land um, – there are airplanes that can auto land that don't have auto throttle systems. So in that case, you're you know you are 
you're managing that aspect of the uh, Autoland. But most modern airplanes nowadays um, have auto throttle systems that are coupled with the auto flight, auto land system, and they uh, actually reduce power when the airplane starts to flare and manages the power all the way down to bringing them back to idle. Now, I don't know if there is an airplane out there that actually does automatic reverse thrust. I don't believe so. By that point, you're on the runway and uh, you basically transition control from the auto flight system to the human system and you start actuating uh, the uh, thrust reversers, etc. But the auto braking system will be already uh, in use or deployed or whatever. And the auto uh, spoiler system, once it senses, you know, strut compression and uh, wheel spin up, depending on your airplane, those uh, surfaces will come up and spoil the lift on the uh, on the wings and you know reverse at that point. So I guess kind of mostly gravy. I mean, it does help you know stop, but uh, it's not a critical thing. You know, it's it's depending mostly upon the uh, spoiling the lift on the wings with the spoiler panels coming up and the braking system to slow the airplane down. And it, it, at at that point, it's still actually flying the airplane and and manipulating it to keep it on the center line of the runway all the way down as you're decelerating. It's a pretty Pretty amazing system, actually. Yeah, it's very sophisticated. But, very- and now I don't know if this is uh, something that you um, uh, experience in the Airbus or not, but I've noticed that in every airplane that I've flown that has an Autoland system, the uh, when when I like if, sometimes we'll practice them in VMC. Um, good weather. Good weather. Thank you. Um, and uh, just to it may be because there's a requirement for the airplane to have an Autoland every so often. And sometimes you just don't have that bad weather all the time to do it. So it kind of gets close to its its period of time that it needs to demonstrate that it is still capable of doing an auto land. Uh, it, the pilots may have a requirement to do an auto landing uh, every so often. And so that might be a reason for us to do it. Or then, of course, you might actually be required to utilize the auto land system when the weather is just really bad. So... Uh, it's interesting when you do one of the Autoland procedures in VMC in good weather because you can watch everything it's doing. You can see where you are in relation to the runway, at what point the uh, parallel rudder starts to work and starts to straighten out the fuselage when the airplane starts bringing back the thrust. And that is the part that I want to see if it's the same in the, uh, in the uh, Airbus system. But the L-1011... Um, Basically, the L ten eleven, I think, is the only, and the and the uh, Mad Dog, uh, with auto throttle coupled uh, auto land approaches. It, the machine, always starts flaring and bringing back the power earlier than a human does. And sometimes in the L ten eleven, it does such, it do, did such a beautiful job of landing in auto land mode that sometimes we just do it just to watch what it was doing. Like, okay, how is it that it's making such a beautiful landing? So you just sit back and watch. Of course, you're following through on the controls, but it's always like, whoa, I mean, I can't believe that this airplane's already pulling back the throttles this early. Like I would never pull it back this early. And then the kind of the nose kind of comes up a little bit higher. The attitude is a little bit higher than most human pilots are comfortable with. But I guess if you, if you kind of take what you've just learned from the Autoland system, when it does a nice job of landing it, you can actually, you know, apply that to your own landings when you're manually uh, manipulating the controls. But do you ever notice that in the Airbus system, or is it all about pretty much the same? Does it ever take you by surprise? Like, whoa, the power is coming back much earlier than I would have pulled it back. 
Well, because we have uh, a slightly different throttle uh, setup. So, oh, and you have a system that tells you when to retard the throttles. Uh, yeah, um, okay. but if you don't, it will pull the power back anyway. Oh. So uh, because uh, our throttles are in a fixed position when we're in auto thrust, they don't follow the engine uh, power changes. They just sit there in the climb detent. Um, when we get down to about 30 feet, the aircraft starts telling us to retard the throttles. And if we don't, when we get down to about 10 feet, then the engines, will, the FADEX will bring the power off anyway. Uh, and it will just keep shouting at you, retard, retard, retard. Um, <laughs> and this goes from a command to um, insult yeah, at yeah, that point. Good point. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, the idea, and of course, uh, that you need to pull them back because otherwise you can't get at the reverse thrusters. So uh, you're going to pull them back anyway. Uh, but if you, if you just, go mad and leave them there, then the engines will automatically come back to idle. Um, the airplane is very good at lining itself up, but unlike yours, uh, the A340, um, and I'm pretty sure the 330, I haven't done too many in the 330, they flare later than I would dare to. Oh, so yeah. it's the opposite of my experience. Absolutely. Ah, okay. So I would normally do a kind of a uh, bit of a check of my nose attitude. So I'd normally at around 50 to 30 feet, depending on whether I'm flying a 340 or a 330, I'll just check the nose up a little bit just to uh, ease that rate of descent to make the actual flare for touchdown a, a little less of a dra dramatic maneuver because uh, you've got to translate that nose up quite a long way to kill the rate of descent. Uh, but the aircraft does it all in one go. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't uh, shy away from the runway in any form or manner. It just drives on down, and then quite low for for my comfort. It just whoops the nose up to the perfect uh, position, and the wheels touch on. And if we, if I tried to do that, I would probably instinctively go, "Oh, I'm getting a bit closer. I really need to give it a bit of backstick and make this a." Uh, uh, quite a substantial flare, and I would usually over flare at that point. Do the old bounce? Yeah, either bounce or I balloon. Just, I'd just sit there with the wheels like five feet over the runway and the rat up going five, five, five. five. <laughs> As you, we sit there in you ground need to effects, descend, <laughs> descend a little bit more. And the first officer would be looking at me going, what are you doing? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so the, my technique and the technique of the most of the pilots I fly with is to, uh, just as you're coming down towards the flare, you, you inch the nose up a little bit just to kill some of that rate of descent and then trying to make that flare. Just, just, it just makes the job of doing that final flare not quite as big. Um, throttles, like I, as I've mentioned, they, uh, they will come back anyway. The power will come back. You pull the throttles back to idle yourself. And you can do that at any height, but we usually wait until we hear the, hear the retard on auto land. We don't uh, anticipate. Uh, in a real aircraft, I might anticipate that a little if I'm realizing I'm carrying a bit of extra speed. So I've hit a bit of a gust in the flare and I've got an extra 10 knots on. I might pull the throttles back just a tiny bit earlier. But normally I don't retire the throttles until uh, 20, 20 feet or so. Okay, good. That's interesting. I, I, I was wondering if... It was the same kind of shared experience across, you know, various air, aircraft manufacturers. But uh, it's interesting because of the whole way it, the auto thrust system works on the Airbus, modern Airbus world is uh, so much different to begin with. And it makes sense that it would be a different experience for us. Um, excellent. Uh, let's see. Finally, I think we have time for one more here. I think that... Uh, 
This is a really good question by Asher. He says, hi, Captain Jeff, just got back into the podcast after a year away. Welcome back, Asher. And it's better than ever. Thanks for doing it. You're welcome. My pleasure. Our pleasure, actually. My question regards the runways. Over the years, rubber builds up on the runways, and I wonder if that's a hazard for at all for airplanes, especially during slippery conditions. Do they ever remove the rubber left behind by planes? And if so, how? Thanks very much, Asher in Miami. And yes, they don't usually allow it to go that long before they do something to get rid of some of this rubber buildup. And you are right. Uh, your hunch that it could be a hazard, especially when it's raining, is definitely <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah. Slippery when wet is quite a, a, a worrisome thing to have in a no-term on a runway because right. uh, it, it gives you a braking action that's not far away from ice. It's uh, it's appalling. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they I, I very much um, hate it when I get to an airfield where they haven't looked after the runway condition and get got rid of that deposit. I'm not sure how often they do it, but um, I, I'm sure of a lot of the time it's done – and like late at night, early in the morning when there's hardly any traffic at all and they'll close certain runways and go. they have some kind of a machine, I guess, that goes out and uh, scrapes that buildup of rubber. Yeah, I think they take those things out of the ice hockey rinks and bring them down to the runway. Oh, and they, Yeah, they go and shave <laughs> the runway. But no, so you're right. I think they've got some mechanical brushes uh, that can, can kind of drag it off and they also use a chemical system which uh, helps dissolve it. Uh, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I, I bet you if you wiki it, there'll be a, yeah. a lot of nice technical stuff in there. Uh, suffice to say, we need to get it off because uh, after a build-up, and it's usually those poorly maintained big international airports where they're more interested in making money than they are in uh, other aspects of their operation where you find it uh, to be particularly bad sometimes. And the most hazardous part of it is not where you're touching down, but it's at the other end of the runway when you're trying to slow the airplane down. And you, you know, sometimes it takes you uh, off guard or, or whatever. It, it, it's like you're not expecting it, and you're, you've slowed the airplane down, and you're starting to steer off the runway onto a high-speed taxiway, and all of a sudden you're going, whoa, where did the ice come from? It's like 80 degrees outside. So, uh, <laughs> yes. yeah, you do, you do have to be cognizant of, uh, and sometimes I've even seen uh, notums that uh, say, you know, use caution. There's a lot of rubber buildup at, you know, on the ends of the runways. And, and it's like an, enough of a hazard that they actually throw out a notam to warn you of it. I mean, for me, the rest, worst runway lengths are, in fact, similar to the ones that we were landing at yesterday. Anything around 8,000 feet is a worry for me because that uh, means I'm usually going to use pretty close to full um, distance, full length of the runway, and I'm going to be getting rid of that last 50 knots in the last 1,500 feet where all the rubber deposits are. Uh, it makes me I'm much more comfortable landing on a runway that's like 10,000 feet because then I know I can complete my braking and turn off and I haven't got to that. You area. don't have to worry about that area with all the yeah. rubber, yeah. potential rubber buildup. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Great question, Asher. Again, uh, welcome back to the uh, APG. And with that, I think we'll go ahead and end the show. Um, we'll throw this uh, last one into the next show folder. And uh, that's from uh, Len on Lantau. And uh, we also have another one in the can, uh, Len, that you sent in a little bit earlier. We're going to have a, an expert uh, answer that for us, hopefully. And uh, anyway, you'll just have to stay tuned to understand what I mean there. So... If you want to uh, learn more about the show, the podcast, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com. 
and there you'll find information about the about the show, the fact that we do this on YouTube as well as um, the audio only show. Uh, you can learn information about how you can become more involved in the community, more involved in helping support the show financially, uh, more about the individual crew members here, the co-hosts of the show, as well as uh, merchandise that uh, is available if you uh, so desire, and uh, other interesting information. So uh, again, that's AirlinePilotGuy.com. And also we have uh, some apps for your mobile devices, whether it be Android or iOS. Uh, go to your respective app stores, I guess, iOS, the iOS app store and the uh, Google Play stores where you'll find the APG app, which is free. It has no advertising on it, and uh, it's, a, it's a great way to keep, um, keep up with uh, what's happening uh, at the APG. Also, uh, we have, uh, speaking of keeping up with the APG, social media. Oh, yes. Uh, we're on uh, Jeff's dreaded Facebook, so you'll <laughs> generally find me there trying to keep an eye on who's posting. And that's uh, facebook.com forward slash airline pilot guy. And uh, we have quite a big presence on Twitter, and uh, we always work under the handle at APG Crew. Absolutely. And also, there is something called Slack that is there as well. It's kind of a what we like to call a perpetual chat room. And if you want to uh, sign up for that, we have somebody to tell you all about it. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1 and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1 and see you in Slack. Awesome. Thank you, Hillel. And oh, you can tell I haven't eaten. My yeah, stomach can. is yeah, uh, growling and all kinds of noises coming from my mouth. Quite some diet you're on. <laughs> I just need to eat. All right. And uh, with that, um, anything else before we shut it down? No. Hey, great. great show. Been yeah. Fun. Thanks. Hey, and don't forget, you know, we do this, uh, we record live using YouTube live streaming, Hangouts on Air. Uh, there's a, a fantastic community of folks that, if they're not at work, or even some of them are, uh, can uh, be there and uh, take part in this live chat room. They uh, they always have a great a great time over there. It's kind of fun. I have more them. time than uh, better better time than I do sometimes. Yeah, sure. I think so. Yeah, so it's a it's a great experience. So again, make sure you uh, follow us on the social media sites that we just mentioned as well as um, uh, the get the apps, and I'm hoping that the push notifications are back to working, but I'm not sure they are, so I'm still working that issue. But anyway, so if you can, sometimes when we're doing this live, you really need to try to try to be there because it's a lot of fun. Kick in the pants. And uh, with that, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care. God bless. Bye, everybody. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot till I started APG. 
open doors for little old ladies. I help them to their seats. Airline, not a guy. I fly. Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly expressed on the Airline Pilot Guy podcast may not represent the views, opinions, or policies of any airline, real or fictionalized, mentioned, implied, or accidentally slipped by any of the participants, guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard, on this or any prior episode of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. It ain't boring, I ain't going.